Good morning, everyone. Welcome to CNN This Morning. We are glad you're waking up with us. So let's get started here. The five things you need to know for this Thursday, March 23rd. New legal trouble for Donald Trump. His attorney in the classified documents investigation has been directed to testify. And in the hush money probe here in New York, that grand jury will reconvene today. Also this this morning, the CEO of TikTok will testify before Congress. We're told that he's going to argue that his app is not a security risk and shouldn't be banned. Los Angeles community also cleaning up from a rare tornado. The National Weather Service says that it is the strongest twister to hit the area in 40 years. And an off-duty pilot now being hailed as a hero on a Southwest flight. The airline says he stepped in to help fly the plane after the captain got sick. And also today, the March Madness is back on. The first Sweet 16 game of the men's tournament is set to tip off. Seen in this morning starts right now. All right, good morning, everyone. We are tracking really big developments. Wow. Uh, overnight into two different investigations into former President Trump. He just suffered a major legal blow in the special counsel's probe of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Trump's own defense attorney has been ordered to testify tomorrow and to turn over evidence. This time, he will not be able to claim attorney-client privilege to some of those key questions in the probe, which includes obstruction of justice. An appeals court has agreed that Trump may have used that lawyer to break the law when federal agents were trying to locate and retrieve top secret files at Trump's private club. And here in New York, in a separate probe, we could see significant movement in the Stormy Daniels hush money investigation. Today, that grand jury will reconvene, and the Manhattan District Attorney has a crucial decision to make before that grand jury votes on a possible indictment. Will he bring key witness Michael Cohen back again to testify after his credibility was called into question. Just days ago, the grand jury heard testimony from Cohen's former legal advisor, Robert Costello, who claims Cohen is a, quote, serial liar, who, quote, decided on his own to pay adult film actress Stormy Daniels and keep her quiet about an alleged affair with Trump. Karis Cannell has been following all of it. She's with us now. All right, let's begin in New York uh, with what Alvin Bragg, the DA, is going to do. Do you bring Michael Cohen back? And then that kind of wraps it up for the grand jury, right? I mean, there, have, there are only so many people that know about the hush money payment and the whole series of events that led up to it. Most of them, if not all of them, have been before the grand jury. Uh, you know, they notified Trump. They invited him to come in, which is required under New York law. He declined. Then they brought in a witness that Trump had asked for. That was Bob Costello. Now the decision is, do they feel that they need to bring Michael Cohen back in to rebut anything that Costello said? I mean, one of the things that Costello said that stood out to me was he was telling, at least he told us, he told the grand jury, that, you know, when he saw Michael Cohen, he was up against the ropes. And when he was in a, you know, desperate state because this investigation, the federal investigation was closing in on him, and he said then that Cohen still would not implicate Trump in this. So it's the question, is that what prosecutors feel? They need to potentially bring Cohen back in to answer. This is all a bit of a black box, the grand jury process. But this is, according to sources, this is the, this is the question that they're weighing. Do they need to bring Cohen in? And once that decision is determined, you know, then things could move quickly. Then they'll decide, OK, do we like our case? Do we want to bring this case? And then you know, it, it doesn't take very long for the grand jury to act. 
The, the concern yesterday is about why, you know, why the delay, why nothing yesterday. But you don't know what's going on inside. They need more testimony. They may need more testimony. They may not have had a quorum of people. Some people may not have shown up or what have you or needed the day off. You never know. These are just sort of perfunctory things that can happen. So we shouldn't read into anything about a possible delay with the grand jury. I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, like you said, it could be a scheduling issue. It could be something, you know, this is a, this is a big decision to indict a former president. It's never been done before. So it certainly is something that you would expect prosecutors to want to be careful about. You know, I'm sure they want to review their evidence. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a big decision. And not only a big decision it's ever been done before, but with a legally really tough case to meet the bar, the threshold for. Right. It's a case that has never been decided by a judge. You know, you've never had someone be charged with falsifying business records for campaign finance violations and that going to trial. You know, this has been a case, an area where people have pled out. So it hasn't been really tested in that way. And so that also is a big question for them to decide if this is the one they want to bring to test it. Karis Canal, thank you. Galen. Okay, so that's what's happening here in New York. You might be easily confused. There are two investigations that we are tracking this morning. This one that we're going to talk about now is the classified documents case. There has been a major legal defeat for former President Trump. And essentially what it means is that tomorrow one of his defense attorneys is still scheduled currently to go testify, but without the attorney-client privilege that he had the last time. He testified. Of course, all of this depends on whether or not they are going to appeal. But we are told right now that that's pretty unlikely. So what we could see play out tomorrow is incredibly significant in and of itself. This is how we got here. There's a three-judge panel in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and they ruled yesterday that this defense attorney, Evan Corcoran, doesn't just have to testify. He also has to turn over some notes regarding conversations with the former president as part of this criminal investigation into the potential mishandling of the classified documents that were taken to Mar-a-Lago. A source tells me that the documents include handwritten notes, transcribed verbal notes about his representation of Trump in the case. That is part of the bigger picture here. Prosecutors didn't get their hands on those back in January when he was testifying before the grand jury for about four hours or so. And also that was when Corcoran declined to answer some of their questions, citing that attorney-client privilege. That has all changed now. The case is completely different given the Justice Department has successfully argued to a judge who agreed with them that there's enough evidence about Trump's interactions with Corcoran that he might have used Corcoran in furtherance of a fraud or crime. It's known as a fraud crime exception. This is how the former president's team is responding overnight, telling me in a statement there is no factual or legal basis or any substance to any case against President Trump. They say the real story here is that prosecutors only attack lawyers when they have no case whatsoever. For more perspective on this, I want to bring in CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. Ellie, obviously this is really rare to see the Justice Department successfully argue that they can pierce this attorney-client privilege for Evan Corker and this defense attorney. Right, Caitlin. So the story starts last summer, if you go back to 2022. So remember, DOJ and Archives is trying to recover all these documents from Mar-a-Lago. They're negotiating until May when they serve a subpoena on Donald Trump's team saying, you have to hand us over all the documents you have left. Now, the next month, Trump's team turns over a small pile of documents, but they also send in a certification. When officials from the DOJ came to Mar-a-Lago, right? Exactly. So they they gave them a certification that said, we've looked everywhere and there are no documents left here. Zero. You have them all. We know that was untrue because two months later, DOJ does the search warrant and they find 100 plus Classified documents. So DOJ is now focused very much on that certification. 
because if it was false and it was false, that could be a crime. Here's what the certification specifically says. Quote, a diligent search was conducted of the boxes that were moved from the White House to Florida and no copy written notation or reproduction of any kind was retained as to any responsive document. Now, that signature is blacked out there, but we know the person who signed it was Donald Trump's attorney, Christina Bob. We also know that she got a lot of the information from, and this is the important attorney here, Evan Corcoran, another attorney, and they both got some of the information from Donald Trump. And a huge part of that letter, though, is that it said, to the best of my knowledge. Right. That is something that I think we are going to see potentially exactly. be one of the biggest phrases of this entire saga. It's an important lawyerly hedge, Caitlin. And now the attorney-client privilege, as you mentioned before, is going to come into play because Back in January, this attorney, Kevin Corcoran, went in and he answered questions in front of the grand jury, but he refused to talk about certain of his conversations with Donald Trump. Which is normal. That is what attorneys Absolutely. typically would do, right? That's they wouldn't talk about their, their what conversations. you would automatically do. You would say it's privilege. However, DOJ is trying to use successfully now what's called the crime fraud exception. Here's what that means. If an attorney and a client are talking about an ongoing crime together, that is not privilege. So, for example, if you hired me as your attorney and you told me six months ago I robbed a bank, that is privileged. But if you say to me, hey, why don't you and I get together and we'll, we'll do a bank robbery, that is an ongoing crime that you're trying to commit with me. That is going to be under the crime fraud exception. Now, DOJ's theory is that the person who committed the potential crime here is Donald Trump. That's really important. What's the crime? Potential crime? Obstruction. And we've seen this before because in the search warrant to search Mar-a-Lago, DOJ said to a judge, we believe that evidence of obstruction, and that's the crime, obstruction of justice, will be found at the premises. Now, Caitlin, if you go to a judge and ask the judge to break through that privilege, you don't have to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. That's at trial. All you have to show is what's called a prima facie case. Which means what? It's one of these Latin phrases that means on its face, like it sounds like. You just have to make sort of the base of a showing. The other thing is there are some situations where a prosecutor can go to a judge and just say, take our word for it. We have enough evidence. Here you have to do more. You have to prove specific evidence to a judge. And so that's what DOJ did last week. They went to the district court, which ruled in their favor. They said, yes, this -hmm. judge said, yes, I find there's evidence of the crime fraud exception. And just yesterday, the court of appeals ruled 3-0 agreeing with the district court. So I want to talk about one big thing here, because a lot of people are wanting to know why they didn't appeal to the Supreme Court. I think that was what people thought immediately would happen when we got this, uh, when this showed up on the docket yesterday as we were all refreshing it. Right. They're not going to the Supreme Court. They're not appealing this. Yeah. Corcoran is still scheduled to go testify uh, unless they change something tomorrow. They could have made that decision. They could have tried to get it to the Supreme Court. It has to be a tactical decision. It has to be. They lost so decisively here and with all three judges here. They have to have just decided why go to the Supreme Court and get slapped down there. And, Caitlin, you're right. The next steps, Corcoran is going to testify. And, importantly, as you reported, he has to turn over his handwritten notes from the time. Pretty rare, right? Very rare. And also really important evidence because that's what he was writing down at the time while this was all happening. It's really important evidence for DOJ. Yeah, it is. And I think one thing we should note is we have no idea what he'll say tomorrow. We don't even know what the notes show. Those are the still big questions we have this morning. That's a lot to break down, but you did so very successfully. (laughs) So thank you so much for that. All right. Ellie, Caitlin, thank you very much. Here's something that you rarely see. Take a look at this. It's a tornado. Hitting near Los Angeles. That's right, a tornado hitting near Los Angeles. Touchdown in an industrial area of Montebello and sent debris flying everywhere. I saw what looked like a water spout kind of tornado twister that was about 30 feet wide that just came through and was just bouncing like a uh, top in between picking up 
debris. The whole sky looked like a dump. 17 buildings in the area of the impact zone have been inspected uh, by our Montebello Fire Department. 11 of those 17 buildings have been red tagged due to the damage that they've experienced. So here's what officials are saying here. One person was injured, uh, one person was hurt, but others there that, who were injured, minor, right? California gets fewer than 10 tornadoes every year. The one in Montebello was the strongest in the state in 40 years. A weaker one hit Tuesday about an hour northwest of LA. Happening today, TikTok's chief executive on Capitol Hill fighting to save the app that 150 million Americans use. Biden administration has threatened to ban TikTok in the U.S. if its Chinese owners don't sell their shares in the company. Since Vanessa Kavage joins us now with the very latest on this. This is interesting. Good morning, Vanessa. Good morning. So the TikTok CEO, Xu Chu, is appearing today on Capitol Hill. He's prepared for this. This is his opportunity to convince lawmakers that China and the Chinese government has no bearing, no control over TikTok. But the very same legislators he's going to be testifying in front of have already made up their mind in some cases. They believe that China, in fact, does have control over TikTok. Many support legislation that would severely restrict TikTok. Many support a total ban on TikTok. Some are calling this hearing today explosive, looking that it, to, that it will be explosive, probably ripe for some TikTok moments of its own. TikTok, the wildly popular social media sensation, has taken America by storm, with nearly half of all Americans creating, uploading, and watching videos. But now the company finds itself in the crosshairs of a political debate. Hi, everyone. It's Sho here. I'm the CEO of TikTok. CEO Sho Chu announcing his arrival in D.C. on TikTok as he gears up to face lawmakers Thursday in a high-stakes hearing amid threats from the White House to ban the app in the U.S. unless TikTok's Chinese parent company ByteDance sells their stake. This is quite literally an existential issue for TikTok. This is life or death. Chu will be grilled on TikTok's perceived threat to U.S. national security. Legislators have raised concerns over the Chinese government's ability to use TikTok to spy on Americans and collect their personal data. The app is already banned on federal devices, and nearly half of all states have banned it on state-owned devices. In so many instances, it just appears that China is not our friend. Now they've got this enormously popular and powerful application that has basically captivated the, the minds of, of the next generation of Americans. What are they doing with that information? But Chu has been insistent China has no influence over the app and its 150 million U.S. users. The Chinese government has actually never asked us for U.S. user data. And we've said this on the record, that even if we were asked for that, we will not provide that. But top U.S. intelligence officials believe otherwise. This is a tool that is ultimately within the control of the Chinese government. And it, to me, it screams out with national security concerns. But there is no public evidence this is happening. The government has not provided uh, a smoking gun. But maybe the government doesn't need to provide a smoking gun. It's about that possibility. Why the hysteria and the panic? Representative Jamal Bowman hosting TikTok creators at the Capitol just hours before the hearing. It poses about the same threat that companies like Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and Twitter pose. So let's not marginalize and target TikTok. 
The Trump administration tried and failed to ban TikTok in 2020. Several courts ruled it violated the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, a law the Biden administration is also up against. Does it have any new legal authorities or powers to actually do it? No. And so this is why we come back to we're likely to get a restriction on TikTok based on what the executive branch can do right now. A complete ban, practically speaking, is unlikely at this point. And to try to address some of these security concerns, TikTok says that as of June of 2022, they've moved all U.S. privacy data onto U.S. servers. But last year in December, we saw some ByteDance employees surveilling and tracking data of journalists here in the U.S. Which Shu is going to preemptively tell Congress today is abhorrent. You know, they fired they those employees. It right away. Yeah. I hope we're able to separate fact from fiction and fear today in the hearing. I think it's it's really important, right? What has happened? What is the risk? And what can be done about it? But what's also fear-driven versus fact-driven? There is certainly fear from legislators based on probably fiction or what they've heard. Chu is expected to read 12 pages of testimony laying all that out. Yeah. Well, Congress is really good with nuance, luckily, so sure yeah. be. That is uh, the <laughs> huge seeing. sarcasm this morning for breakfast. <laughs> Thank you, you. Vanessa. Appreciate it. Oh, and be sure to catch CNN Primetime as we're going to take a special look at the app that is in everyone's pocket, except for me. Um, Or me. I don't have it either. You don't have it either. Uh, But it is a national security threat. That's the question. Is it a national security threat? It is Abby Phillip will host It's uh, Is Time Up for TikTok tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern. All right. Also, the Federal Reserve raising interest rates amid the banking fallout that we've seen as it is targeting inflation. We're going to break down the impact that it has for you next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Federal Reserve not letting up on its mission to curb inflation. It has raised interest rates yet again, this time by a quarter percentage point. That is the ninth straight increase move coming despite concerns about a hike that it could further stress a banking system that has already seen two regional lenders fail. So what happens next? Christine Romans, our chief business correspondent and anchor of Early Start, joins us now. So good morning. So good morning. how did... How did the Fed chair explain this decision? You know, he said the banking system is solid and strong, but that we still needed to be fighting uh, against inflation here. So the Fed's saying it can it can walk and chew gum at the same time, apparently. Nine in a row here. And this brings the, the high end of the rate to the highest since 2007. So the highest rates since 2007. And the Fed chief also noted that the banking fallout could actually be working in the favor of the Fed in a disruptive way, of course, but it could be actually slowing lending. These banks are becoming more cautious with lending to consumers and companies, and that could have a disinflationary effect here. So that's one way the banking sector and the drama we've seen there is feeding into the decisions on Fed interest rates. What we've been watching very carefully is when you start to jack up rates the way we have, over history, you can see these periods where rates rise and then a recession follows. Again and again, you see this pattern, the shadow, the shaded area here is a recession. These are the rate hikes heading into it. The recession we had very short in 2020 was because of the pandemic. That was a unique situation. But we have raised interest rates quite dramatically, the Fed has here. So there are some concerns that 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 pathway to get through this without a recession may be narrowing here. Okay, so what's happening here? This means for you, 
Again, higher interest rates for mortgages, for credit cards, auto loans, and student loans. And you've already been feeling this. This is what's cooling the housing market. The typical $500,000 home, uh, look, a year ago, you would have paid one thing. This year, you would pay 607 more a month because of those higher interest costs. What can you do about it? Look, what the Fed does is out of your control. I would just caution everybody, pay down credit card debt. At interest rates like this, it is dangerous for your standard of living. Avoid store cards. Those interest rates are 30%. If you have savings, search for higher yields in your bank account and consider treasury I-bonds. We can talk more about that later another time, but this is a high-yielding, very safe $10,000 investment you can make in the next few months through Treasury uh, Direct, which is the Fed's very, cl- the Treasury's very clunky website, but it is something that a lot of people are doing, guys. Smart. Yeah. As smart. Christine Romans. Thank you. Smart. Always. Look up smart in the dictionary. Smart. Christine's picture <laughs> right next to it. Thank you, Christine. We'll see you soon. You're welcome. All right, right now, 12,000 police officers are deployed on the streets of France as hundreds of protesters <laughs> gather there in, and in the airport <coughs> to combat the country's pension reform law. We'll take you live to Paris. Plus, a scary moment in Thailand. No, no. Uh, a tourist plunges into the water after his bungee cord snaps midair. What the video captures soon after, that's next. Oof. Well, listen to this. An off-duty pilot on a Southwest flight pressed into action during an emergency. Southwest officials say one of their pilots had a medical issue mid-flight from Las Vegas to Columbus, Ohio. That's when a pilot from another airline who was just a passenger stepped up, helped with radio communication while that other pilot, the first officer, flew the plane. Listen. Okay, we're going to get air stairs out here. Uh, the captain became incapacitated while en route. He's in the back of the aircraft right now with the flight attendant. But we need to get him on an ambulance immediately. That plane landed safely back in Las Vegas. The FAA says it will investigate what happened. I'm glad he's okay. Also, we're tracking this scene coming out of France this morning where 12,000 police officers have mobilized as the country is bracing for more protests and more strikes over a policy coming from the French president that would increase the retirement age from 62 to 64. You are looking at a live picture of the streets in Paris right now. Earlier this week, President Macron survived two no-confidence votes and his government did after that controversial plan was pushed through. CNN's Melissa Bell is live in Paris tracking all of this. I mean, Melissa, we were we were looking at this yesterday. We're looking at what Macron has been saying. He's essentially arguing that uh, it's going to be worth it, that if the, he is going to shoulder this unpopularity. What are people on the street saying about his comments? Well, they're pretty angry, Caitlin, and not just at the idea of this hike in the retirement age, as you say, Emmanuel Macron, the French government, making it clear that for reasons of public finances, this is a necessary move. Uh, but people uh, out there are still pretty upset by it. It is more than 70 percent of the French population that are against it. The unions are united. We're expecting huge crowds on the streets of Paris, but also across the country. And what we've seen these last few weeks, Caitlin, are sometimes more than a million people taking to the streets uh, to make 
take their displeasure known. It's, of course, nationwide strikes once again. Uh, there are uh, images this morning coming from Charles de Gaulle Airport showing uh, the blockage there. They've taken to the oil refineries, and already what we're starting to see uh, is people running out of uh, petrol at the gas pumps, queues forming there as well. And it is these nationwide strikes with which the unions intend to really make France as ungovernable as they can for the coming future. As far as the law itself goes, Caitlin, it's going through. It only has to pass one last constitutional hurdle, and that is at the Constitutional Council, which will rule on its constitutionality. But it has been pushed through Parliament without a vote. And beyond the fact of the unhappiness that's out there about the raising of the age from 62 to 64, there's the question of how it's been pushed through Parliament. And I think that's really finished uh, to make people quite angry. And so we expect huge crowds on the streets of Paris and across the country once again today, Caitlin. Yeah, shutting down schools and paralyzing ports. Melissa Bell, thank you for that update. We'll keep a very close eye on what's happening in Paris because that is extraordinary. Also ahead, we're going to take you inside the Supreme Court's drive to the right and its historic consequences are Joan Biskupic's new reporting on the closed-door maneuverings among the justices as they rolled back abortion access. And the Securities and Exchange Commission charging several celebrities over crypto what they did that cost them thousands of dollars. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. We are waiting for a ruling from a Texas judge who could temporarily halt the sale of a common abortion pill, even in states where abortion is legal. This is just part of the fallout from overturning Roe versus Wade and the Supreme Court's lurch to the right. So how did we get here? Our senior Supreme Court analyst, Joan Biskupic, has the inside story in her new book, Nine Black Robes, for five years. She's been working on this, looking at Donald Trump's impact on the high court, three appointments in just four years. She talked to more than 100 insiders, including most of the justices themselves. Here's one big scoop in the book that has led to a lingering distrust among the justices. Chief Justice John Roberts' administrative team ordered the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg's office cleared out within days of her memorial service, and that is not how it usually works. She also reports that RBG's death had an impact on virtually every major legal issue that this court has heard since. Joan is here. Before we talk, Joan, congrats on the book. Just incredibly rave reviews. All right, let me just read some. Court watchers and civil rights activists alike will find this essential and disturbing reading. Another review saying it is an up-to-the-minute, laser-focused examination of the court. Devoted court watchers will devour this behind-the-scenes expose. I can tell you I did, too. I got an early copy <laughs> with a million notes in it. It's, it's fascinating, Joan. Congratulations. Thanks so much, Poppy. It's, it's really good to be here with you. Thanks. You know, you open the book, Joan, with this. The first page, you quote the dissent in Dobbs, which overturned Roe versus Wade. And that dissent had a key line, quote, no one should be confident this majority is done with his work. Why did you start with that? You know, Poppy, Dobbs was so defining of this court. Uh, you know, Roe v. Wade came down in 1973, and year after year, decade after decade, the Supreme Court upheld it. That all changed when Justice Amy Coney Barrett succeeded Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I show in the book and in this first piece that CNN is posting just how much the timing of her appointment enabled the Mississippi officials who were defending a ban on abortion to succeed at the court and how much that made the difference. Mm -hmm. And then you mentioned kind of a symbolic episode that involved uh, RBG, as she was known, uh, when 
her, all of her possessions and office supplies were moved down to a dark uh, theater on the first floor, and her staff had to sort through things there. It was sort of symbolic of how her legacy was then, uh, you know, you know, ripped up, uh, especially on reproductive rights, almost mm -hmm. immediately. Yeah, it really was. What, one thing I found fascinating that I just did not know before yeah. is you're reporting on Justice Kavanaugh and how, especially on the issue of abortion, sort of trying to have it both ways and in many ways sending double signals to his fellow justices about which yeah. way he would go and sort of publicly excoriating one lower court judge, but then sending that same judge a letter praising them. Yeah, uh, that was interesting. You know, Justice Kavanaugh is smack at the ideological center of this court, so he has a lot of power. But he gives a lot of mixed signals uh, to his colleagues on the court and to people beyond uh, the marble walls. Uh, certainly on abortion, he did that, uh, both in the Dobbs case and in the earlier Texas case. Uh, but the episode you're referring to is one I learned about in 2019, uh, the Supreme Court, by a narrow vote, uh, rejected the Trump administration's effort to add a, a citizenship question to the census questionnaire. And uh, Brett Kavanaugh was in dissent, and he joined with other justices to criticize a lower court judge who had rejected uh, the Trump mm -hmm. move on the census. And then he writes this judge a personal note saying, you know, I actually respect you, uh, trying to persuade the judge not to take seriously the very harsh mm -hmm. condemnation that he and others had put in this dissent, mm -hmm. which I thought was pretty revealing. It's very revealing. Yeah. Um, I, I, you obviously wrote The Chief, the, your book about John Roberts <laughs> before this, and you know him better, I think, than any journalist uh, alive. And one thing you write about Justice Roberts in this book is, quote, he was witnessing a court in overdrive barreling ahead without him in deciding significant social issues. And you note that he has become the first chief justice without an ideological majority. Who's, whose court is this now? Is this the Roberts court? It is to an extent, Poppy. Just think, he's still, he's still in charge and has a majority for things uh, like race and religion. You know, we're going to see in the, in the Harvard case that you've uh, followed so closely, he'll probably take the lead to roll back affirmative action mm -hmm. uh, on college campuses. But as we witnessed in abortion, uh, he, social policy issues is where the court is really slipping from his grasp. And more fundamentally, Poppy, his brand of incrementalism has been rejected by the justices to his right. Uh, Justice Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch have a real sense of urgency to move further, further, further to mm -hmm. the right and very fast, which is against his style. Very quickly. There is maneuvering between the justices here, yeah. even though they abhor the mention that they engage in sort of this for that. You reveal how they do it. They do. And Poppy, during the Trump years, there was almost a paradox. They didn't want to seem political, but they engaged in more PACs and uh, delayed cases and it, tried to sort of do things behind the scenes that would make them appear less political. And that's where some of the justices on the far right felt like the court was going to lose its integrity. But to some, including uh, the chief, it was the only way to avoid the partisan mm. abyss.
Yeah, and you get into examples of him engaging in this as well. Yeah. Joan, it's a fascinating yeah. read again. Here it is, Nine Black Robes. It comes out next week, April 4th. Congratulations, Joan. Thank you, Poppy. I think she needs to know more about the court. <laughs> I literally just wrote the book. Good, because it's yeah. so, she takes you into their chambers, and what I find fascinating, these justices don't talk. And they except talk to, to her. Yeah. Except to her. Yeah. Good for her. Great. New numbers just out this morning reveal the growing struggle for college students in America, why many are considering dropping out. And hundreds of Starbucks employees across the nation are taking to the streets ahead of a big shareholders meeting today. We'll tell you what they are demanding from their new CEO. Very important story this morning. A just-released Gallup survey finds a growing number of college students have considered stopping out or withdrawing for a period of time, not dropping out, but stopping out. More than 40% of all students say that they've considered it uh, in the past six months. The main reason, emotional stress and personal mental health, they now far outweigh things like financial or academic issues. So joining us now to break this all down is Dr. Rebecca Berry. She's a clinical psychologist and a child and adolescent psychiatry professor at NYU. Good morning, thank you very much. I wanted to ask you the big takeaways here, but if I can jump ahead a little bit. Does this have anything to do with COVID and, and how it's changed us and people? We haven't quite figured out how much mental issues and other things that we're dealing with after right. COVID. I think that that's going to be a part it's of a it. Part of it. You know, we've seen a growing trend with uh, college students in general, yeah. with a rise in depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation, really within the past decade. Mm. And then we have the period of COVID, which we know that that can, for many individuals, have exacerbated those conditions. And so I think what we're seeing here is that college students are considering, right? They're they're more aware of what's happening within themselves and this emotional distress and they now are considering an option what do I do now when I have this emotional distress and they're saying that stopping out is one of those options so I think that what the this poll is suggesting is that it's not necessarily tied to COVID it could be part of this overall trend that we've been seeing really within the past decade or so I was struck by it's a lot more women than men in mm -hmm. this study that mm -hmm. are what do you know why well, I think generally the trends for reporting of emotional distress um, really do vary by gender. We tend to see that women, due to societal norms and just the way that we are sometimes programmed to, you know, talk about our feelings or that it's expected more so sometimes than the, the types of roles that are put on men to disclose of their feelings and talk about them. I, yeah. I do think also student, younger students are way more willing to talk about this than mm -hmm. people were previously. And right. like you said, not just talk about it, but also they're willing to say, okay, I'm actually going to, to not take the conventional route and do something different. Right. My brother is a freshman on a college campus right now. And mm -hmm. one thing that I think about even when I was there is the resources on a college campus. It's not that this is not something schools are unaware of, but are they equipped to be able to deal with it and not just say, okay, here's a counselor, but like to actually uh, really address the issue. I think you make two really excellent points there. I think young people in this generation, this age gap between 18 and 24, are more willing to talk about what they're going through. I think that social media can play a role in that as well. And then there's this issue of whether or not the resources on campus have availability. Can and can students access those available resources? And I think that many college campuses are doing a, a great job at trying to serve the needs of their student populations. And yet with this growing trend that we're seeing more and more students become aware of their feelings, become aware of the need to get services, and there just aren't as many. Yeah. These counseling centers aren't equipped to really serve that type of load.
Yeah, that's a good question. It's not just a matter of when I was in college. Just go to the infirmary for everything, mm -hmm. right? It wasn't specific. Mm -hmm. yeah, 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 just, yeah, that's what they right. would call that's it. That's what they just, called it? Yeah, they called mm -hmm. it. Just go to the infirmary. So listen, I, I, looking into this study, um, it, according to it, race and ethnicity play a factor in students mm -hmm. expressing the, these kinds of concerns. What mm -hmm. does it show? So I think similarly, as I was mentioning to Poppy, it, it shows that there, there was a higher, in this poll, a higher likelihood of non-Hispanic or Caucasian individuals to report on their emotional distress. And we saw lower numbers within the Hispanic or the, the black communities to do so. And I think that really speaks to the cultural trends, trends just generally with regard to, you know, trust in being able to report these things and trust in being accessing. believed and heard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Dr. Thank you. I mean, it's yeah, such an interesting look at, and mm -hmm. so important with how many students thank are on you. college campuses. We know it's early. Will you come back? Oh, I will come we'd back. We'd love to have I, you this back. Is, this is great. Really great. We learned a great lot. Show. Love so, having you at the you. table. Thank, thank you. you. Okay, also this morning, the grand jury that is investigating that Trump hush money case, they are set to reconvene today. They didn't meet yesterday. They will meet today. Why the Manhattan District Attorney may bring back Trump's former attorney and fixer, Michael Cohen, We'll tell you next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. New this morning, there's international outrage over a hardline bill passed by Ugandan lawmakers. It is one of the most extreme pieces of anti-gay legislation in the world. The bill imposes up to 20 years in prison for simply identifying as gay. It also includes a death penalty in certain cases. Friends and family must also report individuals in same-sex relationships to the authorities. And the United Nations High Commissioner calling this bill draconian. The White House has warned Uganda of possible economic repercussions here. The bill will now go to Uganda's president, who can choose to use his veto or sign it into law. Last week, he called homosexuals deviants. Don, thank you. I was just reading about what the U.N. has said about this and how much, if this gets signed into law, it will significantly hurt their efforts where the country had made so much progress on eliminating and fighting HIV and AIDS. Yeah. And it's just stunning to see this, Don. Yeah, I mean, it is stunning to see. And you think about the draconian is, I think that's not a harsh enough word for what's happening. And telling people to turn in their loved ones Other and one. friends or Other anyone. People. Yeah. Yeah. And that, listen, we're not nearly there in the United States, but there's a concern about what's happening with the Don't Say Gay bill and all of these sort of anti-LGBTQ initiatives that are you know, on the ballot in certain areas. We're not this far in, but it certainly is a reminder of what can happen when you allow these things to continue to go down the pike. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be watching this one, but Very it is close. terrible. And you're right about what happens with HIV and, and so on and so right. forth. Right. Yeah. And see what, watch very closely what the president decides to do in that country. Right. Okay, also this story. Lindsay Lohan, uh, Jake Paul, Akon, several other celebrities forced to pay thousands of dollars to the Securities and Exchange Commission for failing to disclose that they were paid to promote crypto. Lohan was fined over this 2021 tweet promoting Tronix tokens while failing to disclose that it was a paid endorsement. She agreed to pay $30,000 in fines. In addition to the $10,000 she earned for the promotion, Jake Paul, who tweeted a similar endorsement a day after Lohan agreed to pay $75,000 in a fine on top of the $25,000 he earned from the company. Uh, Soldier Boy, Austin Mahone, Lil Yachty, Neo, and Akon also find the SEC also charged crypto entrepreneur Justin Sun with securities fraud, market manipulation, and failing to disclose paid relationships with celebrities. Guys, do you remember when Kim Kardashian, she had to pay over a million dollars 
for promoting crypto yeah. Ethereum. Um, what's interesting is because they put their name behind these things, a lot of people flock to them. And obviously there's real safety and security concerns and volatility all over the place with crypto. Yeah. yeah. Read the fine print. I mean, we, we've seen the ramifications for, for things like this. Careful what you put your name behind, right? Yeah. yeah. Amen. Also this morning, a tourist in Thailand, lucky to be alive after a thrill-seeking bungee jump, something a lot of tourists do, went very wrong. Oh, wow. Notice, Mike, you can see there as it snaps. Took a swan dive from a 10-story podium. <gasps> Fortunately, he was over a body of water. Yeah. Can you imagine if the water was... <gasps> there wasn't a body of water there. Of course, he did then manage to resurface and swim, despite the fact that his feet were still tied together. Together, He was left covered in bruises, and he says the park did refund the cost of the jump, paid for his X-ray and ultrasound scans. I think that's uh, probably the least they could do. All right, we will stay on top of that, that alarming video this morning. That is okay. CNN This Morning continues right now. Two big pieces of the former president's multifaceted legal saga. We've learned that the district attorney's office is weighing whether or not they should bring Michael Cohen back before the grand jury. This is a warning sign for prosecutors, and the fact that they're considering this is a real problem. The major loss for Trump in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that Trump's attorney must testify again before a Washington grand jury. This is a real serious ruling. The judge thinks there's probable cause there is a crime here. TikTok on the hot seat as the CEO appears before a key house committee in just hours. Some politicians have started talking about banning TikTok. Now this could take TikTok away from all 150 million of you. There's a national security concern. There's a privacy concern here. They are under pressure like no other tech company. The Los Angeles area hit by a rare tornado, the strongest in 40 years. We thought it was an earthquake. They started screaming earthquake and then the power just went out and then everyone started running. We watched it come flying straight across there. Unbelievable, 150 feet tall, just swirling around. You just don't think Southern California having this storm like this. The Federal Reserve just raised interest rates again, despite the bank meltdowns rattling financial markets. Our banking system is sound and resilient. The Fed now has to do two things at once. It has to ensure the stability of the banking system, but also keep up that inflation fight. An off-duty pilot taking over in the cockpit of a Southwest flight after the captain suffered a mid-air medical emergency. The captain became incapacitated while en route. He's in the back of the aircraft right now with the flight attendant, but we need to get him on an ambulance immediately. Can you imagine? Everyone thinks about what would I do if I was, if you were on that plane. would land that plane. I know, but that is, I hate this cliche, worst nightmare, but that is. Worst nightmare. Worst nightmare. Yeah. yeah, if we needed more anxiety in flying. Yeah, and what's happening right now. So speaking of, good morning, everyone. Welcome in to CNN This Morning. We're following major developments in two different investigations of the former president, Donald Trump. His own defense attorney has been ordered to testify tomorrow in the special counsel's probe of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. This is a huge legal blow for the ex-president. An appeals court has agreed that Trump may have used the attorney, his attorney, to commit a crime when the FBI was trying to locate and retrieve top secret files from Trump's private club. We're also learning that the attorney needs to turn over handwritten notes 
that could end up being key evidence. We're gonna explain all of it to you. There's a lot here. Also here in New York, it could be a very big day in the Stormy Daniels hush money investigation. The grand jury is set to reconvene today as it weighs charges against Trump. Any indictment would be unprecedented. No sitting or former, former president has ever been charged with a crime in U.S. history. So we turn now to CNN's Kara Scannell has been following this case and is here with us now. Kara, we know there's a lot. We're gonna break all of it down because there's several different cases here. But let's talk about um, what this Costello testifying and the impact that it has uh, with the DA's office, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right, so Robert Costell, he was a witness that testified before the grand jury on Monday, and that was at the request of Trump's legal team. He told us that he said that he said he Michael Cohen was wrong, that Michael Cohen lied, that Cohen, when Cohen said that he made these payments, the hush money payments, in coordination with and at the direction of Donald Trump, Costello said when he was talking to Cohen in 2018 and representing him, that Cohen told him that Trump had no involvement. So since then, our reporting and our sources tell our colleagues that the DA's office is regrouping. They're looking to see whether they need to bring in another witness, whether they need to bring back Michael Cohen, or whether they're satisfied and they'll move forward. So there's just a lot of uncertainty because the grand jury process is secret. We know that they are coming in today. It's unclear what will be before them today. It could be a witness. Maybe it, maybe it will... They'll, they'll hear something else and it won't be related to this case. But it's we now are reaching this point where it feels like a decision is going to be made because, you know, whether they're going to bring in another witness to try to rebut Costello or whether they'll make a decision and ask the grand jury to indict. As the saying goes, right, a grand jury will indict a ham sandwich, meaning they it generally will hand over an indictment. So then it's up to Alvin Bragg to make just such a critical decision that no prosecutor has ever made, as Don said before in U.S. history, is do you indict Trump on this? Do you charge Trump with a crime on this? And he said a few days ago, my office will not be intimidated. Right. And I mean, they're they're doing their job, right? They're doing this behind closed doors. And there's there's not a, a an imminent deadline. This grand jury sits until June. So they could take more time if they wanted, although they have presented all the witnesses that, you know, have some nexus to this uh, or most of them. Uh, but they can take their time, given the historic nature of this and given how they're considering charging it, um, using potential um, laws that have not been tested in this way, this falsification of business records and tying it to campaign finance. So there is a lot at stake here. I think there's being considered in making their decision. And then then they can go to the grand jury and ask them to vote. Um, but the timeline of this, we're just not sure how soon or how long it will take. Yeah, I think it was, it may have been Chris Christie, but someone said, you know, you, you talked about, Poppy, the indicting a ham sandwich. Um, they said the trouble for Donald Trump is that you can also convict a ham sandwich as well. It's very easy. So I don't, listen, this I don't is know a tough to case. To this is a very tough on. case, but that that is what um, <clears throat> meaning, I guess, politically, the ramifications could be when it comes to this. So we'll, we'll see. see. We'll see. Thank you, Kara. Appreciate it. And we're busy today. Also, now we're going to talk about the other investigation that we have been tracking very closely this week. This is into classified documents because yesterday an appeals court has ordered that Trump's own defense attorney, the one you see here, Evan Corcoran, must testify tomorrow and turn over his handwritten notes. I want to bring in CNN's justice correspondent, Jessica Schneider. Jessica, uh, I was struck by the statement from Ty Cobb, who, of course, was a White House attorney when Trump was president, uh, that he said last night, he said, Trump has turned more attorneys into witnesses than any criminal defendant in the history of the U.S. justice system. Obviously, you know, speaking with some hyperbole there, but 
But making the point that it's just remarkable that we're seeing another Trump attorney going for the grand jury, this time with no attorney-client privilege to, to say to why he can't answer certain questions. Yeah, so this is a big blow to Trump and his legal team, but a big boost for the special counsel. This is a top Trump attorney being compelled to give this testimony about his interactions with Trump. And in this, Caitlin, the courts have really moved swiftly on this. This has been a rapid fire legal battle that's only played out over the past couple of days. And we've learned that Corcoran is expected to appear before the grand jury actually tomorrow. And this is all really potentially key to the special counsel's classified documents probe, because I'll take you back, Corcoran is the attorney who drafted a statement in June. He said that Trump's team had done a diligent search of Mar-a-Lago, that there were no remaining classified material there. But in fact, weeks later, the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago, found hundreds of government records, including some of that classified material. And then in the wake of that, in, in uh, January, Corcoran was called before the grand jury. He was asked about what happened in the lead up to that FBI search, but he declined to answer some of the questioning because he did cite that attorney-client privilege. So then DOJ challenged that. They said that Corcoran's discussions with the former president really could have been part of an attempt to plan a crime. And because of that, Corcoran should be compelled to testify. So, Caitlin, that's exactly what is happening here. Uh, Evan Corcoran lost at the district court level. Now he lost at the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and now scheduled to testify before the grand jury tomorrow. And they're not going to go to the Supreme Court, which I think is something people may have uh, assumed they were going to do yesterday. But what is the Trump team saying? Because they're clearly not happy about this. They think it, it says something about the merits of the actual documents investigation itself. Yeah, so they're responding here, Caitlin. They're saying there is no factual or legal basis or substance to any case against President Trump. The real story here is that prosecutors only attack lawyers when they have no case whatsoever. But really, in reality, Caitlin, this is uh, significant because Evan Corcoran, he may have that key information about what transpired behind the scenes throughout all those months of negotiating with DOJ to get those classified documents out of Mar-a-Lago back into the government's hands. And key here, Caitlin, you know, whether there was any obstruction by the former president, by any of his top aides in getting those documents back into the government's hands. So Evan Corcoran could potentially have a lot to tell the grand jury when he meets before them uh, tomorrow. Yeah. Now the big question is, what does he say? Jessica Schneider, yeah. thank you. All right. Let's talk about all of this with former assistant special Watergate prosecutor Nick Ackerman. Well, you have some experience in this. <laughs> a little bit. Realm. A little bit. Just a little bit. Uh, all right, where do we begin? I, I know that you think that they are likely to immediately grant Evan Corcoran um, immunity. If he should take the if fifth. If he should amendment. take the fifth. Right. So I, mean, let's... I think he's an extremely important witness. All right, let's, so take that immunity question off the table. Why is he so key? Well, because it, it all evolves around the obstruction issue. Uh, and the grand jury subpoena that was served on the Trump people back in May of 2022, um, asking for all the documents that he still had in his possession. And at that time, a lawyer by the name of Christina Bob mm -hmm. uh, provided a declaration, affirmation and certification saying that there had been a diligent search and that these were all the documents. Basically, we have it. A diligent search was conducted of the boxes right. that were moved from the White House to Florida. That's right. Signed, sealed, delivered. Exactly. And it turns out that she really didn't conduct that investigation. She later said that she um, put other language at the bottom of that certification, saying that it was to the best of her knowledge. And it turns out that the person who drafted that declaration was Corcoran.
So the question is, what did Donald Trump say to him about that? Who did the investigation? When was it done? How was it if somebody did a diligent search that they didn't look in Donald Trump's office and in his own desk drawers where he had all those classified records, including his safe, his personal safe that was in the office. And a folder in his bedroom, too. Yeah. So, I mean, this search clearly wasn't diligent. Uh, There were conversations, a phone conversation between Cochran and Trump at the time. Uh, And the question is, what was said? I mean, this is unusual with an attorney-client privilege. It doesn't happen all the time. The purpose of the privilege is so that a client can come in, can tell you what happened, and you can give him advice. And here, it wasn't... I mean, I think what the judges found was that what Donald Trump was doing was basically using the attorneys to perpetrate a criminal scheme to obstruct the government in obtaining the rest of those documents. At the risk of stating the obvious and overstating the obvious, we are talking about the classified documents. As Caitlin and I have been talking, there's so much, like, it just comes at you and the viewer at home, wait, what are they talking about? The DA, is it George, is it whatever? This is just, this is the classified documents that we're talking about now. I just want to give the Trump response and then get you. A spokesperson said, there is no factual or legal basis or substance to any case against President Trump. And then added, the real story here is that the prosecutors only attack lawyers when they have no case whatsoever. It's part of your reporting and others reporting here from this response. What are your your thoughts? The best evidence is the last time that uh, somebody obtained um, documents that were claimed to be attorney-client privilege by by Trump's people. John Eastman uh, had to turn over an extremely significant uh, email um, to the January 6th committee, uh, where basically he admitted in that email that Trump was going to file a false uh, declaration in federal court in Georgia, knowing full well that all of these allegations of voter fraud were false, that there were no dead people voting, that there were no people from out of state voting, etc. cetera. Uh, and that was a situation where Judge Carter in California found that the attorney-client privilege did not apply because um, it was... Th- it was, it was in furtherance of a crime, and that was the crime, and the same thing had to have been found here. We don't know the details of that. We don't. There's a lot we don't know, and I think that's real. We don't even know what Evan Corcoran's going to say. We don't know that it'll be damaging. Maybe it won't be. That's right. But I think what's so remarkable to look back at this is that. that has, John Eastman has nothing to do with this, but the fact that twice in just the span of this period of time, judges have decided that Trump attorneys have can go and they don't have the attorney-client privilege protection is so rare. It is so rare. But the fact of the matter is clearly, clearly, beyond any doubt with John Eastman, that was a statement that was in furtherance of a crime where they were going to be filing false information about there being election fraud. Just real quick, because we have to go on. Uh, I want to talk about just the DA. This is the Manhattan one that I want to talk about. That was a document. This is Manhattan. I said something um, earlier about, you know, you can indict a ham sandwich. And I thought it was Chris Christie who said, but I think it was Alan Dershowitz who said that it was that you can convict. But in New York, you can also convict a ham sandwich because a jury pool will be very much against Trump mm-hmm. and the judges will be very much against Trump. What do you make of that? No, no you're not going to be able to convict anybody. Every jury I've ever had in Manhattan has been extremely serious. They take their job seriously. They look at the evidence uh, in terms of the grand jury even. Look, I've been in this situation before. You take your time. This is an extremely important case. The stakes are very high. Uh, They don't want to screw it up. They want to make sure it's done properly. And if it takes another day to make sure that they've got all their 
T's crossed and their I's dotted, so be it. That's what they should be doing. That's the responsible way to conduct this investigation. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Nick. Good to see you. Good to see you. So the Federal Reserve uh, did raise interest rates again. Why Chair Jerome Powell says it may be close to the end of breaking these, hiking these rates. That's ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Happening right now, as you can see here, there are major protests happening in two key cities. Paris on your left, Jerusalem on your right. In France, 12,000 police officers are mobilizing this morning as the country is bracing for even more protest over a policy from the French president increasing the retirement age from 62 to 64. On the right, in Israel, a separate protest, but one that is ongoing. This is about the government's push to weaken the judicial system and the Supreme Court. We're going to continue to monitor both this morning as they are both very important and have been building for weeks. Also happening today, the TikTok CEO, Sho Chu, will be making his case to lawmakers with the popular app's future in the U.S. It's really on the line right now. U.S. officials are threatening to ban TikTok. Chu will try to reassure policymakers that it isn't a national security threat. That's his mission today. He plans to argue that the app's parent company, ByteDance, is not an agent of China or any other country. So let's bring in now Caitlin Chen from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where she researches technology regulation in the United States and abroad. Caitlin, we're so happy to have you this morning to get us, to walk us through the story. Thanks so much. Can Chu prove to lawmakers in his testimony today that the U.S. user here, that the data is safe from users here? And that is a big concern. I think a lot of lawmakers have already made up their minds about TikTok and whether or not it poses a national security threat. Now, there is no universal consensus among lawmakers about what exactly this threat is. On one hand, some lawmakers are saying that TikTok is like digital opium or like fentanyl that's addicting our children. And then we have other lawmakers that are saying that the Chinese government is using TikTok as a spy vessel, um, as a propaganda tool. Now, we don't have any actual evidence yet that the Chinese government has done so. But I would expect that anything that Shochu says before Congress will not make a big difference. Mm-hmm. You write an article, and this is for Barron's, and it's titled, The Plans to Ban TikTok Aren't Really About TikTok. And in it, uh, you wrote, in part, calls for a ban were never really about TikTok. They are about China, and it could have unintended consequences for U.S. businesses. Can you explain what you mean by that, Kaylin? Sure. A lot of the concerns about TikTok are that the Chinese government, because of Chinese surveillance laws, can broadly access personal information that's either stored or transferred within borders. Now, if the United States either bans TikTok or forces TikTok to sell to a U.S. company, this isn't going to affect just TikTok. This could potentially affect any Chinese or even any non-U.S. company that wishes to operate in the United States. I mean, in 2023, every company operates a website, every company collects data, so every company is a company, but it could also affect U.S. companies as well that wish to operate abroad. There are a lot of countries that have concerns about the lack of data privacy laws in the United States. There are a lot of countries that have concerns about U.S. government surveillance, too. So if the United States takes this very unprecedented move to either ban TikTok or force it to divest, this could have longer-term ramifications for the global economy. Yeah, at least 150 million people will be watching, at least Thank you very much, Caitlin Chen. We appreciate you joining us. Thank you. 
So be sure to watch CNN Primetime tonight. CNN's Abby Phillip is going to host It Is Time Up for TikTok tonight, 9 Eastern, right here on CNN. All right. The Federal Reserve making clear yesterday it is not letting up its fight on inflation yet, despite concerns another interest rate hike could stress the banking system even more. Yesterday marked the ninth straight increase of interest rates, this time by a quarter percentage point. Fed officials noted the recent banking turmoil likely will actually help in its fight on inflation, leading to tighter financial conditions, hopefully helping their mission of slowing down the economy. I know it seems antithetical, but that's why we have Jason Furman here, Harvard professor and top mm -hmm. former Obama economic advisor to explain. Jason, good morning. This is what you thought would happen, 25 basis points. I just wonder, did the Fed sort of split the baby here and not help inflation that much, but not hurt the banks that much? So where does it leave us? I mean, a little bit, but there was really no good choice here. Uh, they have this problem with the banks. They don't know how big that problem is. They have a problem with inflation. They don't know if that problem is going away. And so, you know, splitting the baby might have been might have been the best of the bad options here. But you just said they don't know how bad the problem with the banks is. But we heard Powell say yesterday, quote, our banking system is sound and resilient with strong capital and liquidity. Is it? Well, I would separate two questions. One is, is your money safe in the bank? Absolutely. First of all, up to $250,000, it's insured. Above that, I believe they're going to make sure that everyone can get all their deposits out. There's then a separate question, though, of are banks going to continue lending? And how much are they going to continue lending? Certainly less than they were before. Yeah. How big that credit crunch is for the economy, that's what they don't know. Um, that's what no one knows. That, that credit crunch is something that Larry Summers warned about when he was on with us last week. That always hurts. This lending issue is going to hurt the smaller companies, the more vulnerable folks. It's not the big guys that get hurt in that. Yeah, absolutely. If you're a big company, you might be borrowing in the bond market. Right. Those uh, interest rates have actually fallen. Um, not risen. If you're getting your loans from a really big bank, you're probably okay. But if you're getting your loans from a regional bank, from a small bank, yeah. as so many small businesses are, um, it you know the interest rate they post may look yeah. fine to you. They just may not be willing to make a loan at that interest rate. I'm so glad you make that point because this is why these smaller regional banks are so important. Forty percent of loans um, come from banks outside of the biggest 25 banks. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And the Fed has a tricky balancing act. They actually do want um, to slow the economy. They do want less lending, less borrowing, et cetera. They just don't want it to happen in a dramatic and uncontrolled fashion. Yeah. And that's what they're trying to do. And mostly they're using other tools. They're lending money to banks. They're extending deposit insurance, at least to two banks mm -hmm. so far. So they're using different tools they have to keep that banking system alive while trying to focus their interest rates on their primary mandate, which is inflation. Um, Jason, Jerome Powell also said yesterday that their actions demonstrate, quote, all depositors' savings in the banking system are safe. But then in her testimony before Congress later yesterday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said this. And have that, not considered uh, or discussed anything having to do with blanket um, insur insurance or guarantees of all points. deposits. So are they or aren't they protecting all depositors above 250000 like they did for these two failed banks? 
Look, I think the communications yesterday was unfortunate. I hope it gets cleaned up very, very quickly. My own belief is having paid 100 cents on the dollar for the depositors at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, they are going to continue doing that. Maybe it's not a blanket guarantee, but it will be on a case-by-case basis. But every single case will get that treatment. You can't give money to these people in Silicon Valley and then have a bank in the Midwest run into problems and not uh, insure their deposits, too. They're going to do it, whatever they say. Quite a pickle there, and you can't pick winners and losers. Um, But, yeah, I think that needs to be cleaned up right away for the American people. Jason, thanks very much. Thank you. Also this morning in California, a rare tornado ripped through the Los Angeles area. It's the strongest that they've seen in 40 years. We're going to take you there next with these remarkable videos coming out. Also off the clock, but luckily still on alert, an off-duty pilot actually had to step in when a plane's captain needed medical attention mid-flight. The captain became incapacitated while en route. He's in the back of the aircraft right now with the flight attendant. What you're looking at, it's not Oklahoma, it's not Alabama, that is Los Angeles. A video of a rare tornado that ripped through an industrial area in this city. It sent debris flying everywhere, as you can see here. This one in Montebello was the strongest that California has seen in four decades. Officials say that one person suffered minor injuries. There was substantial damage to buildings. CNN's Stephanie Elam is live on the ground tracking this. I mean, Stephanie, I imagine people are a little bit in disbelief. I mean, I can see the tree through the fence behind you. I mean, I imagine they're a little shocked by all of this. Yeah, remember, Caitlin, we were talking earlier about how this has just been like the weirdest winter ever in California. This is more proof of it. As you take a look at how that tree is impaled, we know that at least one roof collapsed. We know cars were damaged, windows were blown out. All of this happening in just a few minutes as this was a very, very small tornado, EF1, and it touched down for a very short time. Debris flying through the sky in Montebello, California. I saw what looked like a water spout kind of tornado twister that was about 30 feet wide that just came through and was just bouncing like a uh, top in between picking up debris. The whole sky looked like a dump. The National Weather Service confirming the area in Los Angeles County saw a rare tornado touch down Wednesday. The powerful winds tearing through this warehouse, damaging more than a dozen buildings in the area, blowing out windows and tearing roofs off buildings. Torrential rain came down after this roof was torn from a seafood supply warehouse. The employees hid in the corner, unable to pull this metal door down against the wind. The warehouse was hit by the tail end of the storm that left the building battered with debris strewn throughout. The National Weather Service says the storm formed so quickly, no official warning was given to residents. This particular tornado spun up very quickly, and there's actually a a subset of tornadoes that form too quickly to be detected and warned for, and this happened to be one of those. On Tuesday, a small tornado hit a city in Santa Barbara County, creating a very narrow and consolidated path of destruction. 
Residents witnessed debris flying in the air and trees uprooted. Within a few seconds, my carport disappeared. I turned to go in the house. Piece of it hit me in the face. Luckily, it was a flat piece, didn't cut me. Some of these awnings were flown up in the air several hundred feet and landed in tops of trees. And the power has been out in this part of Montebello. In fact, when we got here, uh, the power company was out here restoring lights and getting this back up. But just think about this. We're talking about sustained winds of up to 110 miles per hour, strong enough to take that tree, pull it out of the ground and throw it, impale it on top of that fence, Caitlin. And you know what, Stephanie, that I was just thinking about? I, I grew up in Alabama. We had tornadoes every weekend, it felt like, sometimes. But we knew what to do in advance of them. You know, they didn't always, you didn't always get a ton of warnings, but you knew, you know, get in the bathtub, put your tennis shoes on in case it does hit your house and you are walking around debris like what we've seen there. But I imagine a lot of people there, you know, they probably never experienced a tornado before. Yeah, no, exactly. I grew up in California, Caitlin, and this is not something that we talk about. We talk about earthquakes. We talk about a lot of things. It's not preparing for tornadoes. And this one happened so fast that there just wasn't the warning for people to even know that it was coming. And it was during daylight hours. So people were out here in this community uh, working at that time. So, yeah, just completely terrifying if this is something you just are not used to. Yeah, absolutely. Stephanie Elam, thank you. Yeah. But don't we know that, right? Louisiana and Alabama. Yeah. Those, I mean, it just comes out of nowhere, at least when... when you know, when you have a hurricane you know or even a snow, you know it's coming, a tornado. It's just, it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. And in California. Uh, this story is shocking. There's a good ending to it. So I have to tell you, it's an off duty pilot who was flying as a Southwest passenger, stepped into action when the captain had a midair medical emergency. He helped with radio communication while another pilot took the wheel, and together they safely landed the plane, right? So there's a good ending to it. Pete Montine joins us now. Pete, this is an incredible story. How did it all unfold? Is there a pilot on board? It's right. kind of the dream sentence that every pilot wishes to hear when they're a passenger on board a commercial airliner. You know, a pretty amazing coincidence here after a lot of pretty bad headlines for the airlines. Think about this. The Southwest flight 6013 just took off from Las Vegas yesterday morning, was bound for Columbus, Ohio. When only about 27 minutes in, it turned back for Las Vegas. The pilot of this plane had an apparent medical emergency, according to Southwest. Airlines leaving only one pilot in the flight deck. That is when this passenger, who was an off duty pilot from a completely different airline, was pressed into service and into the flight deck. This is the statement from Southwest Airlines. It says a credentialed pilot from another airline who was on board entered the flight deck and assisted with radio communication while our Southwest pilot flew the aircraft. We greatly appreciate their support and assistance. You have to think about this. This is so rare for something like this to happen. And it is a really serious incident. I want you to listen now to the air traffic control audio from liveatc.net, where one of the members of the crew, we're not totally sure if it was the Southwest pilot or the pilot pressed into service, communicated with air traffic control about the severity of this incident. Listen. Okay, we're going to get air stairs out here. Uh, the captain became incapacitated while en route. He's in the back of the aircraft right now with the flight attendant. But we need to get him on an ambulance immediately. Southwest not releasing the condition of the pilot who fell ill. Also a mystery is the name of the off-duty pilot who came in to help. In fact, no airline really claiming that pilot just yet. Just a case of right place, right time here, Don. The FAA is investigating, but one thing to underscore, it's good 
that the 737 had another pilot, two pilots on board at all times. It's required by federal regulations. Can be flown with one pilot, but better to have two pilots done. Yeah, right on. I've heard, is there a doctor on board before? Seriously, but never <laughs> is there a captain on board or a pilot on right. board. Unusual. Thank you, Pete. Glad there's a good ending to it, though. Kaylin. Just saying, I, I hope I never say something. <laughs> the, is there a pilot on board? Yeah. Is no thanks. Can you imagine though if you heard that over the the intercom? Is there a you'd be like, wait a minute, <laughs> where's the pilot? Who's flying the plane? Exactly right. All right, uh, moving on. There are major developments in the Trump classified <laughs> documents investigation. The former president's own attorney will now have to testify before that grand jury. That is stunning. We'll explain why. Trump's former acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, is here to discuss that and a lot more next. This morning, the former president is dealing with a major legal blow that he was dealt yesterday after his defense attorney, Evan Corcoran, was denied attorney-client privilege, essentially meaning that he is going to be testifying tomorrow before a grand jury that is investigating the classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago without being able to cite attorney-client privilege. On top of testifying, we are also told that Evan Corcoran must turn over documents, notes that he took about uh, his defense of the former president and the existence of these classified documents. In response to the ruling that we heard yesterday, the former president's team said there is no factual or legal basis or substance to any case against President Trump. The real story here is that prosecutors only attack attorneys when they have no case whatsoever. Joining us now for perspective on this is Mick Mulvaney, who is Trump's acting chief of staff at the White House. Obviously, Mick, you know the former president well. What do you think is going through his mind as he's thinking about his attorney about to go testify before a grand jury while having to talk about their private conversations? What's going through his mind? What's going through his mind is obvious. He thinks this is a witch hunt. They think this is a continuation of the Russia collusion charge, the Mueller investigation, the first impeachment, um, what's happening in Manhattan. I can tell you for a fact that that's what Donald Trump is thinking. He's seeing this as part of a series of attacks against him. Whether it is or not is open to interpretation, but that's exactly what Trump is thinking. But do you think he's, he's nervous? I mean, it's the idea that his attorney is going in there and is going to have to testify about everything they've discussed. Um, listen, attorney-client privilege is the type of thing that, that, that lawyers and, 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 uh, and people in lawsuits will claim every single time. Even if the attorney says 100% correct and legal things to his client, they are still going to invoke attorney-client privilege. It's part of the practice. I used to practice law. So just because um, your attorney has to talk and has to testify doesn't mean he's going to necessarily give evidence that's bad for the client, in this case, Donald Trump. But certainly, I think it's a loss for the Trump team, because what it says is that someone has been able to convince the judge that there was possibly conversations in furtherance of a crime. That's the only way you can sort of get through the attorney-client privilege is by mm -hmm. making the case that that conversation was in the furtherance of a crime. So there must be evidence someplace in this case that convinced a judge that they might have been talking about committing a crime. That's a fair point. We don't know what Evan Corcoran is going to say yet when he testifies tomorrow. You referenced the case here happening in Manhattan that is separate from the Evan Corcoran situation. This is with Stormy Daniels and the hush money payments. Do you think it's inevitable that Trump is going to be indicted? 
Uh, I do. Uh, I think the political pressure is such, the timing is such. I think that the statute of limitations in this case runs in May. Um, I do think he's going to be indicted. I don't understand the arrest part, whether or not he'll surrender himself, whether or not they'll require him to surrender himself, whether or not they'll make any special accommodation for him because he is the former president of the United States, because he does have secret service protection 24 hours a day. But I absolutely expect an indictment. There's no reason to go this far down the path if you are, uh, uh, Mr. Bragg, the a district attorney in Manhattan and not bring criminal charges. There's an argument out there that Trump actually wants to be indicted, that this could yeah. benefit him politically. What do you think of that? Oh, I think it's one of those rare cases where the extreme left in this country and the extreme right want the same thing, which is they want Donald Trump to be arrested. The left want to see him frog marched in his uh, orange jumpsuit, and the right wants to see him arrested because they think it will show that this has been a political uh, witch hunt the whole time, and they think it will make Donald Trump more sympathetic. And honestly, Caitlin, some of the polling data I've seen in the last week supports that. Donald Trump's numbers in a theoretical Republican primary have actually ticked up in the last couple of weeks. So, yeah, it's a, it's a strange place to unify the country, perhaps, but a lot of folks on both sides of the aisle right now want to see Donald Trump arrested. But for Trump himself, this idea that he wants to be indicted, it, it seems, I mean, I understand the argument being made by someone on the right about that, but this mm -hmm. is a really sensitive case for him personally because it's involving Stormy Daniels, which was a high point of tension with him and the first lady. He's mm -hmm. going to be indicted if that is what happens here. It's not, you know, it's hard to say that that's an advantage you know, just completely through. It's an excellent point. No one really wants to be indicted, right? When no one wants to be arrested, certainly no one wants to have your, your private personal laundry aired in public. You're absolutely correct about that. But at some point, face it, if you're Donald Trump and you're thinking, look, it's going to happen anyway, let's make the best of it politically. Let's have a chance to maybe make the argument that I have been targeted, maybe get the, some of the sympathy from the, from the swing voters in the middle. You might as well make the best of the situation. That's one line of reasoning that you might be seeing coming out of Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. Last question for you. You're in Washington. We've been talking about that hearing that's happening today on Capitol Hill. The CEO of TikTok will be up there trying to make his case before lawmakers. You actually went to a dinner with Democrats and Republicans last night. Is your sense that there's anything he could say to, to convince them that TikTok is not a national security threat? Yeah, Caitlin, no. Uh, and it's very rare. I've been in Washington about 10 years, and it's rare that I see a circumstance where anybody has no friends in Washington, D.C., where the Republicans and Democrats are either united for you or sometimes united against you in this case. Um, and TikTok is there. I'm not sure. yet. If you get asked to testify before a congressional committee, you sort of have to go because it looks really bad if you don't. But I have no idea what this guy's going to say today that could possibly change the direction of, of, of where Washington, D.C. is going. So many CEOs think they can go into a congressional hearing and sort of command it like they can a, a board meeting or a shareholders meeting. That's not the environment that the CEO of TikTok is going into today. Should be very interesting to watch. I don't think he can say anything to change the direction of where Congress is going. Wow, that's significant. Mick Mulvaney, thanks for your time this morning. Thanks, Caitlin. We'll be watching that hearing today. The Federal Reserve has once again raised interest rates despite the meltdown in the banking sector, but could the tide be turning? Take a look at this person right here. Who's that? None other than Shark Tank's Kevin O'Leary. He's standing by. I wonder if he has any thoughts on this. I mean, he never speaks what's so on his mind. he's reserved every time. Every he time. Never he never actually says. says. We have to pull thinks. it out of him. Yeah, you never know <laughs> what he's going to say, if he says anything. <laughs> More CNN this morning to come after the break. 
We remain committed to bringing inflation back down to our 2% goal and to keep longer-term inflation expectations well anchored. Reducing inflation is likely to require a period of below-trend growth and some softening in labor market conditions. Okay, so that's the explanation there. So we're going to get to Kevin O'Leary so everyone pay attention after nine consecutive interest rate increases. The Federal Reserve is signaling an end to hikes in the near future. The Fed raised interest rates by a quarter of a point yesterday despite recent trouble in parts of the banking sector. The chaos had economists worried that the Fed would overcorrect the economy into recession, but... The chairman, Jerome Powell, said recent events in the banking system could actually help their efforts because it'll lead to tighter financial conditions that can sh slow the economy. So let's hear what uh, Kevin O'Leary thinks. He is a judge on Shark Tank and the chairman of O'Leary Ventures. Good morning. What do you think? I thought yesterday's uh, testimony was fascinating. Let me, let me give it to you blow by blow about why everybody should think this yesterday through. The 25 basis point hike was highly anticipated. 69% probability it happened. The market went up. It was expecting it. Then Powell starts testifying. This is where it gets interesting. Yeah. Clearly, he's much more hawkish than the statement said, particularly in the back end. But the minute I really thought was incredible, when he starts talking and answering questions about regional bank crisis, at that moment, a release comes out of Yellen saying she's not considering guaranteeing. Can we play it for people so they can hear this? I've never seen such a well-orchestrated team up on well, that. Well, they, they contradicted each other. Just I want people to hear what Yellen said. Yep. I have not considered or discussed anything having to do with blanket um, insur insurance or guarantees of all deposits. I was sitting in front of the trading desk watching two monitors explode at the same time. Bow's <laughs> hawkishness and then her comments. So what that was signaling to the market, I think, orchestratedly so, is that we're not worried about the regional banking system anymore. 48 hours ago we were, we are not now. So basically they're telling you in their own code that these three banks that we've been talking about now for three and a half weeks are just poorly run institutions that are going to zero, and it really doesn't matter. Now, whether First Republic is bought or not, that brand is so tainted, you would never open an account there. That's not and true. I have, a, I, ha I have an account at First Republic. A lot of people have accounts at First Republic. Is it more than 250000 No, no, Kevin O'Leary, not even my close. Case, Your Honor. But my, my point is... You know, there are a lot of economists who disagree with you. I'm sure you saw the paper out a few days ago from economists at Columbia, Northwestern and USC who said 90 percent, 190 small and regional banks are at risk of failing right now, pointing out that it's not just the management of these three banks. And you're saying that that is the case, but you don't think the government would shore them up? Nope. I don't think you're going to, there's a political will in any state. Let me give you an example. Just being pragmatic. You're an orange farmer in Florida, and you're being asked as a taxpayer to back up a bank in California that has nothing to do with your world or your economy. Right Regional banks were set up 40, 50, 60 years ago to take care of the differences of the economies in different states. The state should eat it. And that's why people are starting to think about this thing. Wait a second. Why do I have to suffer bad policy or a bank that has gone rogue when I have nothing to do with them. There are states, and the audit is going on everywhere, state by state, where have the most successful regional banks been? 
It's been in a state that nobody ever talks about, North Dakota. And here's why. North, about North Dakota is the only state that has its own sovereign bank, the Bank of North Dakota, that supervises all the regional banks. They don't have failures. They take care of their own. They worry about their own committees. Now, if we did that in every other state, then I agree with you. Have regional banks, but they have no use to me or anybody else anymore. Not to you. Okay, that second part, though, is not true. Explain why. PPP loans. Regional banks were really critical in helping small businesses get that. A lot of people, I'm from Alabama, a lot of people I know don't know someone at J.P. Morgan that they could call to help yeah. them get, uh, get a, a PPP let, loan. Let me, let, me, let me counter that. Okay. 99% of PPP loans, because all of my companies took them, we did it online. We didn't care which bank. We tried to get in the queue as fast as we could. We orchestrated it. Let's take this, the state. Here's the data. What state was the most successful in processing PPP loans? 1.8 billion, the highest per capita, North Dakota, because they actually had an orchestrated banking system that worked. And so my argument is, why doesn't other states yeah. look at that model and go that way? If California wants to have banks that are very aggressive in technology, let them eat it. Ke let them Kevin, eat it. Kevin, I think Caitlin makes a critical point here. It's PPP and it's beyond. I'm sure you saw Bob Diamond, who used to run Barclays, one of the biggest banks, yes. wrote that op-ed yesterday in the Washington Post. And he points out the important fact you've got 40% of loans for small and medium-sized businesses are from banks outside of the top 25. A lot of the startups that weren't all big Silicon Valley high-flying companies that got loans from SVB told me it was because they couldn't get loans from the big guys. Small and regional banks know their customers better, generally, and they are willing to give loans where some of the bigger institutions won't. Don't you lose that if you lose those banks? You don't need all of them anymore, is my point, because 99% of transactions in banking, all banking, whether it be personal or corporate, are done online. You are agnostic to where the bank is when you go online. Now, maybe you love the Kumbaya aspect of feeling great about having a regional bank a branch somewhere. No one in their 20s I just don't ever think that's goes to a fair bank. to say kumbaya. That's not true. I think you have access to capital in ways that most normal Americans don't, Kevin. You know, here's the issue that we really are discussing. Do you think it's a good idea to guarantee every single account, regardless of the amount, everywhere all of the time? Yeah. More than half the country doesn't agree with that. They're just not there. They don't want the big bailout anymore. So if you want to have little banks with $250,000 max in them, they'll never make money. And it's going to get a lot worse because these regulations that are going to be increased after what happened to Silicon Valley Bank are going to make most of these regionals unprofitable. Now, do you want to That's prop them point. up with government money? That's yeah. fair I point. get what both of you... Yeah, you you both have great points. You all have great points. But, but we live in such a shared economy now. I see what you're saying. And quite honestly, for people who are, if you're walking in off the street, would you, in a bank that is failing or collapsing right now, would you go and invest and put your money in there? I'm with you. I don't think people are going to do that. But I'm not saying they shouldn't. But I think the, the conventional economy is If you didn't have they, an account at First Republic, would right. you walk in there now That's and That's what I'm saying. Money? Zero probability. It's That's like Credit Suisse. It's a zombie bank. The, brain, the brand is tainted. Yeah. If it dies, who cares? Yeah. And why is Thank Jamie... You. All right, we've got to leave it there. But Thank why you. are a lot of big banks and smart bankers jumping in to help them? I don't agree with that. That's right. my money to Jamie's be putting to work continued. there. To be continued. We've got to start Thank the top of the hour. Thank Thanks, you, Kevin. Kevin. Appreciate it. We love having you. Yeah. <laughs> CNN This Morning continues right now. Kevin.
What's the address in Sun Island? We don't know. You don't know? Once you went down, was the sewer left, right, straight? Where was it? I need you to guide me. Wow. Good morning, everyone. That audio that you heard there were children recorded on 911. They were begging for help because they became lost in a sewer in New York City. We're going to have more on that dramatic rescue coming up. But first, a big legal blow for Donald Trump. His own attorney ordered to testify about top secret documents found at Mar-a-Lago. And here in New York, the grand jury is getting ready to reconvene and weigh charges against Trump in the Stormy Daniels hush money case. As you know, things change with these cases. The Donald Trump case is minute by minute, so stay tuned. Plus, we have this. There's TikTok CEO. You see him there on the screen. He's gearing up uh, to testify on Capitol Hill as the White House cracks down on the Chinese-owned app. Okay, but we're going to get started with major developments in two very different investigations of former President Trump. His own defense attorney has now been ordered to testify tomorrow in the special counsel's probe of classified documents that were taken to Mar-a-Lago. This is a legal blow to Trump. They had tried to fight this. They were unsuccessful. And the attorney, Evan Corcoran, could potentially be a key witness. We still don't know what actually he could say to prosecutors or what they're going to ask these investigators or what they're going to ask him. He is the one, as you remember, that drafted the statement back over the summer that said a diligent search had been conducted at Mar-a-Lago when it came to the classified material. That was signed by another attorney. It obviously turned out not to be true, as we saw from the FBI search that was executed at Mar-a-Lago just weeks later when a trove of sensitive documents were found as part of that search warrant. Now, moving on to the other investigation. This is the one that's happening here in New York. This is the one about Stormy Daniels. The grand jury is set to reconvene in the hush, case, the hush money case there. And in a surprise move, the Manhattan District Attorney told them to stay home yesterday. They did not meet. Our CNN senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed has been very busy and is tracking all of this. Let's start with the first one. When it comes to Trump's defense attorney, who is now going to testify without being able to say, oh, I can't answer that because of attorney-client privilege. This decision came so fast. All right, let's just, let's just start with that. This was a rocket docket. This really gives some momentum to the special counsel as it tries to get evidence that could really make or break the case against former President Trump because they have successfully convinced a judge that they have evidence that these conversations between former President Trump and his attorney, Evan Corcoran, may have been part of a crime. So now they are able to pierce attorney-client privilege. And not only are they going to get testimony, they're also getting documents. This could be really critical evidence because these are handwritten notes that Evan Corcoran was taking at the time all of this was happening. This is rare. This is extraordinary. Of course, Corcoran, as you noted, he's already been before the grand jury once. And at this point, it's unclear what new information they're going to get from him. But the fact that all of this is happening with this kind of speed, it is extraordinary. We're, we're lucky to have you here and both of you here because you've been doing extensive reporting on this. But I noticed that the, the energy with which you say this is rare uh, explain that because I, I don't think it can be, you know, over explained to, to the viewer. This sure. is extremely rare that this is happening. Yeah, attorney client privilege. It, it's so sacred in the judicial system. You have the right to discuss your case with your attorney and know that those conversations are going to be protected. They're not subsequently going to be used against you. But there are some exceptions, and one is the crime fraud exception. So here, prosecutors have convinced a judge that they have enough evidence that this advice, these conversations, may have been part of a crime. So that's why they're able to get around that here. But look, the former president clearly he has a lot of legal problems, but this is arguably the biggest problem he has right now. Well, but the most imminent maybe is what's happening here in New York, because the grand jury 
This is totally separate. This is the Stormy Daniels. Done. <laughs> I, like, we want like a banner to be like, this is which one we're talking about. It's another now. one, the other one that's happening because here in New York. It's important to be to be clear. And this yeah. is when the the grand jury is going to reconvene today. They didn't meet yesterday. We don't really know why. What's the significance of them meeting today? You're absolutely right that this is the most imminent legal threat, though I think we can all agree it's not the most consequential when we talk about the facts of the case, right? This is about hush money payments. And what's so interesting this week is prosecutors have had to take a pause after what happened Monday. Remember, attorney Robert Costello went before right. the grand jury at the request of Trump lawyers and attacked the credibility of Michael Cohen. He's the key witness in this case. Whatever happened during his testimony, forced prosecutors to take a pause, recalibrate. And we've learned now they're wondering whether they have to call Michael Cohen back. I was going to ask you, do we know if he's, if he's going back or you not? So I will say that his attorney is telling us that he's not coming back today, but we haven't confirmed that with other mm -hmm. sources. Uh, but we're certainly trying to figure out if it's him because we've also learned they may call another witness to try to button up their case before moving on to a vote on a possible indictment. So I know people keep asking me, is this vote going to happen? When is it going to happen at this point? We don't know what they're up to today, but we do know they're contemplating calling back additional witnesses. Yeah. You guys have had great reporting, both of you. Oh, and, you. and the other Caitlins and everyone. Yeah. Is it takes a village. Yeah. It's an effort on this. Yeah. All right, Paula Reed, thank you. Totally agree with that. It's been amazing, and we'll see what happens in the next 24 hours. Meantime, happening today on Capitol Hill, TikTok CEO Show 2 will be on the Hill. He'll testify before Congress. This is his first public testimony as the CEO of the company. U.S. officials are threatening uh, new legislation on this app, potentially a ban of the app in the United States. Two plans to reassure the public that TikTok is not a national security threat. He also will highlight that more than 150 million Americans use it every month. Let's walk through these numbers with CNN senior data reporter Harry Anton. I saw you dancing. I like that music there. a little bit. Um, what do we need to know ahead of the hearing? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, TikTok is becoming so much more popular in the United States. I think that's the number one thing to take away. So U.S. adults who use TikTok, Pew Research Center <laughs> pulled it from 2019 to 2022. Look at this. 3%, 12% in 2020, 21%, 30% in 2022. And then this number, 38% in a new Washington Post poll that came out yesterday of U.S. adults say they use adults. TikTok. Adults. I think it's parents trying to be cool with their kids. Maybe so. That may be so. And if you put it in the context of the other apps, look, it's more popular than LinkedIn. It's more popular than Twitter, which is my favorite app to use. It's not quite up to Instagram or Facebook with 70%, but still 38% puts it right in the middle of the pack. But as you pointed out, Poppy, it's U.S. teenagers. Take a look here. Look how many teenagers use TikTok. 67%. In 2014, they didn't pull TikTok. It wasn't a thing yet. It is the number one social media app for teenagers, well ahead of Facebook at 32%. And it's right above Snapchat and Instagram and the this is what huge. worries me because TikTok put in a few weeks ago that 60-minute time limit for younger users but they can just sign in their password or their parents can override it. But the Chinese version of it has a 40-minute limit for young kids, and you cannot get back on per yeah. day. I mean, the fact is, is that that is probably not the type of thing. If you're really addicted to TikTok, then you are going yeah. to get onto it no matter what. And, you know, part of what's going on yes. here, part of our hearing this hearing, you know, this Washington Post poll that came out yesterday, do you, in fact, support a TikTok ban? 45% say yes. But I want to point out a lot of people are unsure at 33 percent. Why do they perhaps support a TikTok ban? 
because among voters, 74% think it harms teens' mental health, 68% say it collects Americans' personal data, it's likely that it does, and 59% say it lets the Chinese government control what Americans see. So I think okay. that these hearings may go a long this, way in these helping These are, just want to be clear, these are fears, these are not backed up by these are what, facts. These are what these voters two. believe. Yes. These are what voters okay. believe okay. is likely. Okay, Harry, thank you thank very, you. very much. Don. All right, we're going to dig in a little bit more. So here's what TikTok CEO Sho Chu is expected to tell lawmakers this morning. We've gotten a copy of his remarks, okay? He will say, quote, let me state this unequivocally, ByteDance is not an agent of China or any other country. His remarks will include broad promises to protect U.S. user data, to keep teens safe, and to remain free from any government influence. Now, Chu's testimony is the company's most visible attempt yet to shake off concerns about the potential for foreign spying that have spooked governments worldwide. So joining us now is the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Mark Warner. He recently introduced a bipartisan bill expanding President Biden's legal authority to ban TikTok nationwide. So, hello. We're wondering what he will be listening to today. Thank you so much for joining us. So are you zeroing in on choose answers on what TikTok does with this user data? What are you going to zero in on today? Well, a couple of things. First of all, it's even worse than your data. And I loved it. The earlier presentation <clears throat> on average, TikTok users are using TikTok about 90 minutes a day. I, I bet you wish every one of the CNN viewers spent 90 minutes a day on, on CNN. And, and respectfully, what the, what the TikTok CEO says, of course, ByteDance would never turn this over to the Communist Party. He doesn't have any say in that. China changed its law in 2017 that requires every company, when requested, to turn over data to the government. So the notion and one of the geniuses of TikTok is it learns from you every time you're on the site, it starts to get to know you what you like better than even what you know. Do you want all that information ultimately residing under the guise of the Communist Party of China? Number one. Number two, this is a powerful propaganda machine if it's used that way. You pointed out that candidly, the TikTok version that Chinese kids see doesn't have the kind of uh, stuff that, that our kids see. It emphasizes science, engineering, be a good student, be a patriot. Um, this is an incredible misinformation, disinformation machine. I'm not saying they're doing it right now, mm -hmm. but that potential, if President Xi in China wants to somehow invade, wants to invade Taiwan, and suddenly folks not only in, in America, but around the world are starting to see videos that uh, reinforces that kind of message, that is a propaganda tool uh, that makes every every other possibility pale. So I think there needs to be a rules-based approach that says when we've got technology from countries like China and Russia, there needs to be the tools that say if they pose a national security threat, um, we will give the Secretary of Commerce uh, tools to take care of that. We've got now 10 Democrats, 10 Republicans, backing of the administration. This is not the first time we've had this kind of issue. A few years back, it was the Chinese telecom company Huawei. Before that, it was the Russian software company Kaspersky. We need a rules-based yeah. approach that takes on foreign technology from adversarial nations. Senator, given that, is there anything the CEO can say today to convince you that TikTok isn't a national security threat? I, I've respectfully met with the CEO. I've met with the TikTok team. I've heard them out. Uh, 
I don't think they are owned by ByteDance, a Chinese company. At the end of the day, I don't think they're masters of their own fate. Chinese law trumps anything that the, the corporate management wants to do. And I would point out one other thing that's, that I think will make, hopefully make the point. President Xi and the Chinese leadership have said you know, they would rather get rid of TikTok in America than give up the source code, the, the magic formula that resides in Beijing uh, if through divestiture part of the requirement was that source code had to be located in America. There's two, two points of, of fact here, Senator, and I, I think a lot of people share your sure. concerns, but our Brian Fung did a great fact check just on what we actually know versus the fears that are laid out. There is no public evidence that the Chinese government has actually spied on people through TikTok. There was that surveillance of journalists, which was very troubling. They were fired. Terrible that happened. But also to date, no public evidence that Beijing has harvested TikTok's commercial data for intelligence or other purposes. I, I just wonder if you have any fear about choking something off that me, helps a lot just, of let me try to, creators. Yeah. Let me just finish the question. Choking something off that that, sure. that means a lot to a lot of creators and small businesses and is a source of revenue for them in that way uh, before these worst fears are realized. I've read through your Restrict Act. I know what it does, but just respond to that concern. Sure. Let me, let me do it in a reverse order. First of all, there's a lot of creative stuff on TikTok. There, we've seen the influencers, uh, they make their living off of this. And you know, frankly, there are other American sites, YouTube and others, I, my understanding at least, reimburse at a higher level. I absolutely believe in the market. If, if TikTok were somehow to drop away tomorrow, whether it's an American company, a French company, an Indian company, there will be a replacement site where people can still be creative and uh, earn that kind of living. I, I believe the market will provide that, number one. Number two, uh, on the question of no evidence, respectfully, um, you know, we see press report after press report. Uh, and you know, TikTok says, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Chinese engineers got it this time. Chinese engineers got it this another time. You've got, frankly, individuals who are whistleblowers coming out. Mm -hmm. And I think this threat is real. And one of the things that my legislation would do is require the intelligence community to declassify as much information as possible. So it's not, don't just trust the government. And final point I make is this. This is not just an issue in the United States. Look at the other nations. Canada is banned off of their government phones. Britain has the same. Recently, the Netherlands said, if you're a journalist, don't have this on your phone because the Chinese yeah. are monitoring your journalistic activities. And India has already banned it outright. We, we want to ask you about banking as well, Caitlin. Well, I, sure. obviously, we, we saw what happened yesterday. I know you wanted to see a, a pause in the interest rate hikes from the Federal Reserve. Obviously, that did not happen yesterday. We saw what we heard from Jay Powell, but I had a separate question from you, which is on donations you received from SVB, which you said you would return. Um, I believe that there's malfeasance to be found. Why not just return them now, though, Senator? Because, well, listen, if there's malfeasance, and I believe, you know, it sure as heck appears to me that uh, the bank was a little bit asleep at the switch and the basic prudential regulation uh, didn't kick in. This was Banking 101, there was an interest rate mismatch. Um, 
I will absolutely return once we've seen the results of how this came about. If there's malfeasance, this money goes back. Uh, that'll be, we'll figure that out by May 1st. That's when the vice chair of the, uh, the Fed will make its report. The other thing that I think we have to look at this, and I don't have a good answer on this, is we've never seen a run driven by the internet this quickly. $42 billion came out of this bank in one day in six hours. That's the equivalent of 25 cents on every dollar. And candidly, there were some folks from the venture capital community who I believe incited this run. Uh, I'm not sure that's illegal, but it sure seems it pretty darn immoral. But we got to get the answers first. And if there needs to be, for example, corrections yeah. in the reforms that I supported back in 2018, count me in. Yes. I think at the end of the day, this is going to be, though, a basic failure of Prudential Regulation 101. Can I just ask a follow up to that? Because according to public filings over the last sure. 10 years, your campaign and your team has received over $21,000 from SVB, including 5600 from the former CEO, Gary Becker. I think everyone agrees there was certainly mismanagement, at the least, at that firm in terms of interest rate uh, protections. You've called for, in just the past week, for executives and their bonuses from SVB to be clawed back. Why should theirs be clawed back and your campaign donations not be returned? Well, First and foremost, campaign contributions have never affected any policy decision I've ever made full stop. And I will make the determination once the report is done, and I expect I'll probably be uh, giving this back to charity the way a couple of other members have, but I do think we ought to get our facts first. Um, and when we see the report, and matter of fact, I'm going to get a chance to talk to Mr. Barr next week in a public hearing if he's got an interim report and there is the evidence that uh, malfeasance, clearly this bank, it appears at least, didn't have a risk officer eight of the last 12 months. That's another glaring red flag. Uh, I and I think others uh, will, will take that action. Mm -hmm. But let's get the facts first. I okay. mean, the irony is some folks are proposing a solution set before we actually have the facts. Let's yeah. get the facts, correct it, make sure it doesn't happen again. And I sure as heck believe there ought to be clawbacks if there is the malfeasance that uh, you've suggested. All right, we understand. And a full investigation and getting the reports, okay, that, that's certainly smart. Can we just, I just want to get back to bottom line, this TikTok and ByteDance. Because there are lots of apps out there who get our information you know, Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, and so on, Meta. The big difference for you, because people at home are watching, why is this any different? Why is TikTok any difference? Is the big difference the Chinese communist government having access to our information? Is that the bottom line here? The bottom line is that the Chinese Communist Party being able to access that data and potentially using it for nefarious purposes, spying on folks that may be part of the Chinese diaspora, frankly, that are against the government, and also this being used as a propaganda tool. Now, on the American sites, listen, I think there ought to be privacy rules. I think there ought to be data portability. I think we need reforms on the Section 230, which, frankly, gives these American sites a get-out-of-jail-free card no matter what they put forward, and I think Congress ought to act on that. But as chairman of the Intelligence Committee, uh, I believe TikTok poses a national security threat. And is. before all the potential bad action takes place, we ought to act. There's the answer. Thank you. And we'll be watching. We appreciate you joining us Thanks. this morning. Thanks Thank so you so much, Senator. Thank you.
And regarding what's happening with TikTok, not just what the senator was raising there, but also what we are going to see on Capitol Hill today, be sure to watch CNN primetime tonight because Abby Phillip is going to host the special is time up for TikTok, 9 p.m. Eastern. In California, a rare tornado, very rare, ripping through the Los Angeles area, the strongest in 40 years. We're going to show you the damage. And a pride display in Chicago is put on ice. We'll explain why. Look at that. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. A little bit disturbing, okay? Just going to warn you because there's new audio just released now. 911 phone call from kids trapped in a New York City sewer. They were playing in a storm drain Tuesday in Staten Island. Police say that they traveled nearly a quarter mile through a tunnel into the sewer system before they got lost and they called 911. What's the address in Staten Island? We don't know. You don't know? Yeah, we're like sewer. We're stuck in the sewer. Once you went down, was the sewer the left, right, straight? Where was it? I need you to guide me. Right, right, right. right. Oh, to the right side. How long did you walk for? Okay, we like, yeah, we walked a lot. Call for help, guys. They hear you. Call for help. I mean, wow. 30 minutes later. All five of the kids were found, pulled out of a manhole, and taken to safety. Yeah. You have kids. I just, they always ask me, like, what is that, Mom? Like, and I'm like, go, oh, get away. It's a place you don't go. Yeah, and I also worry about on the side of the sidewalk, you know, those doors that are open. Yeah. You know, I worry about yeah. them all. Well, I'm yes. glad they're okay. Glad they're okay. Yeah. Also happening right now, as you can see here, we are tracking major protests that are playing out in two key cities across the world. Paris and Tel Aviv, two different protests but still both equally important. In France, 12,000 police officers have mobilized because the country is bracing for more protests that we have seen in recent days over the president's new increased retirement age that's going from 62 to 64. It's caused intense backlash that has led to issues with trash, paralyzed trains and ports, it has shut down schools even. On the other side of the screen, we're watching what's happening in Israel. There is an ongoing protest there about the government's push to weaken the country's Supreme Court. CNN's Melissa Bell is in Paris, though, tracking what's happening there. Melissa, I mean, you're on the streets. Clearly, the anger here is not dissipating over this push in the retirement age, even despite those new comments from the French president. I think almost uh, in part because of uh, those new fresh comments by Emmanuel Macron, the new to Caitlin, it was yesterday afternoon, he spoke on French national television vowing to battle on. Uh, but in a sense, there's very little he can say at this stage, given the anger that is out there. As you can see, we're not marching yet, but this is what Paris looks like uh, this lunchtime. We're due to set off in about half an hour's time. There's always a kind of festival air about these things. Uh, we've become so accustomed to them. This is the ninth day of official protest and strikes across the country. But what we've seen over the course of the last week are several days of spontaneous protest, Caitlin, because the French have been so incensed uh, by the manner in which this uh, law is being pushed through without a vote in Parliament and being pushed through to 62, as you say, to 64. And those spontaneous protests have often led to violence. And you mentioned those 12,000 policemen out on the streets of France today. That is also because although the unions tend to manage to police these things fairly well, it's what we've seen on the other eight big days of protest so far this uh, year. What we fear today is that given their spontaneous protests, given their violence, given the scuffles there have been with police, uh, that this one is unlikely to go peacefully. Caitlin. 
All right, Melissa Bell, I know you'll be tracking these protests. Thank you so much. More upsets, more big wins, overall madness. I don't know what camera to look at. Sorry about that. <laughs> We're talking about the Sweet 16 of the NCAA Men's Tournament. TNT sports reporter, a force in her own right, Allie LaForce is here to break it all down. And as we go to break before that, this might be one of the most outrageous goals you've ever seen. A goalkeeper, yes, a goalkeeper until his top six soccer league scored no. from a goal kick. No. That is more than 100 yards away. It might even break a world record. Uh. We're going to Google it while we're in the break. <laughs> so check this out. There's a reason we're putting that jersey up for you. A display of pride in Chicago, right? It's being put on ice. Uh, because uh, thanks to an anti-LGBT laws in Russia. The Chicago Blackhawks will no longer wear rainbow-colored pride-themed warm-up jerseys on Sunday when the team holds its pride night because of safety concerns for its Russian players. That is according to the Chicago Sun-Times. In December, Russian President Vladimir Putin signed a law making it illegal for anyone to promote same-sex relationships. Several of the players have family in Russia. So the Sun-Times reports that the team's front office made the decision, not the players. New York Rangers opted not to wear pride jerseys in January, despite previously advertising that they would. And also, as we track that, we are tracking other sports news. This is a much happier note. It has been a historic NCAA tournament so far with a 16th seed knocking off a number one seed. Only the second time that's ever happened. Fairleigh Dickinson pulled off a stunning 63-58 upset against Purdue in the first round of the tournament. They even got in on a technicality, which is why it made it all the more headline-worthy. Tonight, the madness is marching on as eight of the final Sweet 16 teams do their best to survive and advance to the Elite Eight. So joining us now to talk about what we're going to be watching, the one and only Allie LaForce, who covers the tournament for TNT. You didn't say it right. Allie LaForce! I acquired it. It is my real name, by the way, too. Because people in sports are always like, oh, when did you change your name to be a sports reporter? People say that to Wolf Blitzer, too, and he's like, no, this is my name. Okay, but back to what's happening. The games were starting tonight. I feel like we've been, like, starved of a few days of, like, getting to actually see the games. What are you going to be watching? Yeah, where you're like, okay. I mean, even just watching that upset and your smile, you just grin ear to ear. And this time of year is so special. I'm reminded of it. I'm so excited to be here because just to bring a taste of the energy that you get to feel when you're in these arenas, it's it's everything that encompasses hope and togetherness and commitment, and especially in a day and age when players can be one and done and they want to go to the NBA. And there's so much talk about making millions of dollars as professional athletes, but you have these teams where you have fifth-year seniors and players that come back just because they promised their teammate they would. I know the NIL has thrown some really interesting conversations into the mix, but when you look at our matchups that are here at Madison Square Garden in New York City, Tom Izzo, Michigan State, I mean, he's become such a staple of March Madness. You like to root for the underdog. He has the most wins in an NCAA tournament as the underdog, as the lower seed. That's the case again this year. And his team did not use the transfer portal. And that's, I think, such a fascinating story because it's easy just to grab talent um, to make your team better, to make a push in March Madness. But the team got together and said, we want to do this on our own. The team they're playing, Kansas State, built their team from the transfer portal. They literally had five guys in July. They don't have one player that is an original Kansas State signee. So it's the clash between the two different ways that you can approach the new portal. Wow. Look at Allie bringing the energy and the positivity. I know. I'm, I'm ready to go. The game's the not till at 6.30 at night. I better cool myself. I know. You're like, pace yourself. <laughs>
What I was actually thinking was, I have no idea what a transfer portal is. Oh, God, that's something <laughs> Sorry, to research in the chat. So that's where they transfer <laughs> in the portal. I'm, but now I'm going to ask you something Caitlin will like, and that is about Alabama, the favorite to win it all. Oh, yeah, girl. I'm going to hype you up for this one. No, they, that's called, Nick Saban calls that rat poison. Oh, reverse we don't right, like that because we don't, want, we don't want you to overhype us. We want to wait and see what actually happens. Okay, we'll stick to facts to begin, which is the fact that there are so many conferences represented in this tournament, 11 conferences, which is outstanding. The Big 12 has three. The SEC has three. And so if you can get Tennessee, Arkansas, and Alabama all to advance, oh and their roads to the Final Four, they're capable of doing that. It's going to make the SEC known for basketball and not just football. As you know, it's become known for football. Yeah. They've had great basketball teams for four or five years now, but if, you, if they get three teams in the Final Four, that will be just wild. Yeah, I um, think everyone then... When my group texts what everyone's laughing about, it's just the fact that Alabama's football season didn't exactly go the way we wanted, and now it's like we're all like grasping on. To and it looks like the point team. guard Miller, who has been dealing with the groin injury, could be cleared and close to 100% for Sweet 16 action. So you have a lot to look forward to, yeah. I think. We'll but I don't what, want to well, throw yeah, we'll that rat poison in there. <laughs> the <laughs> only thing that. missing from that SEC thing is, as you know. Sorry, LSU. LSU. I know. I'm I know. sorry. That's all right. Not his always year. next year. Ellie <laughs> LaForce. Right, you're going to be very busy. So thanks for taking some time to join yeah, us here at the course. table this morning. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for having me. Good, Good to, to see you. Thank you. We'll be watching. Uh, so just crazy what is yeah. happening in Los Angeles. This morning, communities are cleaning up after a rare tornado that. actually ripped through L.A. We're live with a look at the damage ahead. They're cardboard boxes. I saw what looked like a water spout kind of tornado twister that was about 30 feet wide that just came through and was just bouncing like a uh, top in between picking up debris. The whole sky looked like a dump. Yeah, that happened in L.A. That's right. You are looking at video of that rare tornado ripping through an industrial area on Wednesday near Los Angeles. This one in Montebello was the strongest to hit the state in 40 years. Officials say one person did have minor injuries. There was substantial, though, damage to buildings. Our Stephanie Elam is live in Montebello. This just doesn't happen in California, and yet it no, happened. It's, Poppy, it's... It's very rare for this to hop, happen here in California. I think on average, it's like one tornado. But the fact that we've had two in California is a big deal. One in Carpinteria in Santa Barbara County. And then this one here uh, in Montebello, which is in Los Angeles County. And you can see, just taking a look at me, how strong this storm was. It uprooted this tree, threw it in the air, and impaled it on this fence. We also know that there were uh, at least one roof that collapsed. We know cars were damaged, windows were blown out, beams inside of buildings were uh, brought down as well. Very intense overall when you look at how small this was. It was an EF1, so it had winds of up to 110 miles per hour. It was only here for two to three minutes, but it did significant damage. The power company just coming through and uh, turning back on the lights here. Luckily, nobody was killed or deeply injured in that. Then we also have new numbers, if I pivot here a little bit, from the U.S. Drought Monitor taking a look at the drought in California. We've been speaking a lot this week about how much precipitation we've received, and if you take a look at the map comparing this new data from this week to December 
December of 2022, it's a very different map. Just think about it. At this point last year, 100% of the state was in drought. And now they're saying for the fourth week in a row, we have now seen that the drought has continued to diminish. And actually right now, there's no parts of the state that are in extreme drought. So this is all a good sign here. And this doesn't even take into account, Poppy, some of the storms that we saw earlier this week, that yeah. last atmospheric river of the 12 or so that we've had so far this season, it doesn't even take into account all of that moisture that we received here in California. I was just saying in the break, Stephanie has had to cover way too many terrible weather stories in California. I think everyone <laughs> in the country is saying, what is happening in California, Steph? So we appreciate you. It is not an easy yeah. job. Thank you. Caitlin. Yeah. Always watching her jacket choice given these weather Always conditions. <laughs> That's Stephanie Elam. Okay, also this morning, the Federal Reserve once again raising interest rates. There was a big question of how big they would go, what it would look like. Our next guest is actually happening, hoping it wouldn't even happen at all. We're going to ask him, Senator Sherrod Brown, if he thinks the Fed got it wrong. He, he's the chair of the Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Committee. He's joining us live right after this. Morning, Senator. There you see it there, the Federal Reserve's Reserve has raised interest rates yet again, a quarter point. The move is meant to curb inflation, but unlike the previous rate hikes, this time the Fed had to consider the recent regional bank failures. Federal Chairman, uh, Fed Chairman, I should say, Jerome Powell, said that they actually considered not raising rates before ultimately going with the quarter point. Still, he did signal that a pause could be near. We no longer state that we anticipate that ongoing rate increases will be appropriate to quell inflation. Instead, we now anticipate that some additional policy firming may be appropriate. We've got a lot to discuss now with Senator Sherrod Brown, Democrat from Ohio and chairman of the Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs Committee, as well as a member of the Senate Financial Committee, Finance Committee, the perfect person to discuss this. Thank you, Senator, for joining us this morning. We appreciate it. Thanks, Don. Perfect person to discuss this. Yeah. Well. <laughs> you are. You're on all those committees. I'm not sure what and, that means, and, but go ahead. Right, well, we're right. going to find out in this interview because you told Bloomberg last week that you hoped the Fed would pause rate hikes. So, did the Fed get this wrong? Well, I don't, I don't second guess the Fed. It's an independent institution, all that. But what I have said to Federal Reserve members is they should be speaking out on uh, some of the real causes of inflation. We saw during the pandemic, we saw the, the pharmaceutical industry, the oil companies, uh, the transportation companies, and the meatpacking industry raise rates, raise their prices far beyond what their cost inputs were far beyond what they should have and taking huge profits and they use the pandemic to do that we're paying for a big part of that with inflation so i would i know i know the fed can't exactly do anything to them and congress should but the fed should be speaking out and pointing the fingers pointing their finger at where inflate much of the cause of inflation so th that was my general unhappiness with this uh, but i think the fed you know the, the fed's got to do what it, it's going to do what it's going to do in the end and i was glad to see powell suggest this may be the last time he does this all right look i'm glad you gave us a context but your quote to bloomberg in, in march was march 14th I would hope the Fed would not change rates next week. That was your right. quote to him. Right. Yeah, okay. And I, I stand by that. Okay. So historically, recessions have come after an increase in interest rates. Economists were already worried about the possibility of a recession before this rate increase. Are we headed, in your belief, towards a recession? Are we headed for a recession? Yeah. 
I don't think so. I mean, I, I look at look at the economic growth we've had. Look at the job growth we've had through much of the last year, and I still feel good about that. So um, it's you know it, it, it's partly what the Fed does. It's partly will will the Fed uh, point their fingers at these companies that abuse, abuse the public trust. And uh, this is this will sound a bit off, but when the when I first started seeing on Thursday what was happening in Silicon Valley Bank, the first thing I thought of was something that happened in my state is that, and that's in East Palestine with the train derailment. Look at the history here. The most powerful corporations in this country 100 years ago, 150 years ago, were the banks and the railroads. Um, they continue to get their way. The banks do, the railroads do. They, their executives lobby Congress and too often get weaker rules to protect the public, both in banking and in train safety. Um, and it's time Congress look at those things in the context of what happens to workers uh, when those companies too often get their ways in Congress and too often get their ways in these federal regulatory agencies. Yeah, I'm glad you, you uh, talked about what happened with the train derailment because I want to move on now and, and turn to that, that toxic train derailment in, in your state. While testifying before Congress on that East Palestine, Palestine train derailment, Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw dodged questions about safety regulations and, and paid sick leave uh, for employees. Let's listen to it, and then I'll get your response. Here it is. Will your team lobby for safety improvements rather than against them? Senator, we will continue to follow science. We will continue to follow data. Will you make that commitment right now? to guarantee paid sick days to all of your workers. That's not a radical demand. It really is not. I'm committed to continuing to speak to our employees about quality of life issues that are important to them. So stock answers there. What do you think needs to happen to prevent another disaster like this, Senator? Well, the railroad should support uh, Senator Vance, a Republican, and my bill together, bipartisan bill, should support our bill. And one of the most astounding things is the railroads keep saying that one human being, one engineer on these trains that are getting longer and longer, 150, 200 cars, two and three mile trains, they think it's okay to have one person, one engineer, one human being run these cars. And I asked the CEO of CSX when he came to see me, did you fly in today? He said, yeah. I said, did you have one or two pilots on your plane? I mean, it's insane as these trains get longer and longer and heavier and heavier and carry more and more hazardous materials uh, that, that the railroads continue to say, we only want one human being running these trains. I mean, that's just emblematic of, of their arrogance and who they are and what they are and the damage they've done. The average fine is less than $10,000 for dozens of safety violations for multi-billion dollar companies. They, they don't disclose when they're carrying hazardous materials into the state. So I, I just have a short, Senator. No, this is coming, all of that. Respectfully, let me jump in here because I only have about 30 seconds left. Sure. The, so the, sure. the legislation that you're proposing, how would it fix that? Well, we'd say at least two people running the trains. They'd have to disclose hazardous materials. It would up the fines that these companies pay. It would pay a t it would it would make safer the the wheel bearings that cause most of these accidents. I mean, all of these things. And and it's got strong bipartisan support. It's going to get through the Senate with 60 votes, 65 or 70 votes. We're calling on the House to do the same. Um, but it'd be it'd be good if the railroad executives would say, yeah, we support this bill. We'll make a couple little changes, but but they won't. They've always gotten their way. They've always fought in Congress with their campaign contributions and their political connections. And, and in the past, railroad safety has been compromised. They've laid off a third of their workers in the last um, 10 years. Uh, we're not going to let them get away with this again. 
So I was right, the perfect person to talk about this. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you, Sherrod Brown. We appreciate <laughs> Thanks, it. Come back, right, please. Thank you, sir. Thank you. He's <laughs> perfect person. You were right. Yeah. <laughs> we he's like worried about what that meant. Time. Yeah, he's like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Uh, we, here we have to go, so we'll see you tomorrow. Oh. CNN Newsroom is now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.